you're a busy guy. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I've been sort of like talking about this book a lot, but mm -hmm. also looking for the next big stories in this whole weird hacker world. Yeah, it's uh, it's always a pl uh, fun for me to talk to people like yourself who are like established, real like big time journalists. You know, I'm oh, that's very kind like, of you. I'm, I'm very used to I'm used to talking to like the small time like independent YouTube journalists. I mean, I've heard the people you have on like the these these sort of independent YouTube journalists are often like digging up the most interesting stuff and like doing the craziest adventures. So you know, I, I'm I feel. I don't know, kind of lucky that I have like a pretty established establishment media job, but I still get to go on these weird, down these strange rabbit holes and, you know, take time to do investigations and, and books every few years. What got you interested initially in this whole like crypto dark web hacker world? Yeah, let's see. I mean, I, I have covered this world of cybersecurity and hackers and surveillance and the dark web and all of that for, um, I mean, before the dark web even existed since like 2007 or so. And I don't know, I came to it in this weird way of, um, I, I like had tried to be a China journalist and then I went to journalism school and I found that in journalism school, it's hard to find stories because you're like just in school. You don't, you're not like out in the world. So I sort of turned to the internet instead. And I don't know, I'm just like, a, I've, I've, I've always, been like the kind of um, reporter, I think, who like looks for like weird and geeky and like strange underworld kind of stories anyway. So that worked out for me and I got a job at Forbes magazine. And then a few years into being Forbes's kind of hacker, cybersecurity, like internet underworld reporter, which nobody really thought was even could be a job back then. I think that, you know, Forbes was kind of like a little skeptical that that could even be a full time beat. Um, I mean, I came upon this phenomenon, which um, was described to me as a kind of like anonymous and, and potentially untraceable sort of digital currency, which was Bitcoin. This was 2011 or so. And I'd, I'd been, I guess, at that point, writing about this movement um, called the Cypherpunks. I had written like a cover story for Forbes about WikiLeaks and I was writing a book about WikiLeaks and the way that it came out of this cypherpunk movement of these radical libertarians who believed that they could use encryption to take power away from governments and give it to individuals, like carve out spaces where, you know, on the internet, like the dark web, essentially, where the government can't reach and where you can do black market transactions and communicate in total secrecy. Uh, and all, you know, that seemed to me to, to be this incredibly like, sexy fascinating world of um where there were going to be like really dangerous interesting things happening um for years and, and years to come and so when i came upon bitcoin it seemed to me to be the kind of like holy grail of that world like this is real uh crypto money now like not just secret communications but secret financial transactions and that's going to unlock this and monetize this whole online black market and you know shortly after that that's when the silk road appeared the first dark web drug market that traded of course only in, in well in drugs but for bitcoin and it seemed to me to prove yes like this is this is working like cryptocurrency this or you know we barely called it that at the time but bitcoin um seemed to be unlocking it and like you know creating this flourishing new um lucrative worlds where you could buy and sell and also put into your body anything you wanted without government intervention i guess you know fast forward to 2020 or so i mean that's a, that's a big fast forward but 
<laughs> I, I, by, by 2020, I began to realize how incredibly wrong I had been about that. How, in fact, it turns out that Bitcoin was the opposite of untraceable. Not just, I wasn't just like a little bit wrong about this. I was like completely incorrect. Uh, and in fact, so were all of the people in those early days who had told me that Bitcoin was untraceable or anonymous, um, including, I should say, the, the mysterious creator of Bitcoin, Satoshi Nakamoto, had had advertised Bitcoin in, in an email to this cryptography mailing list as like, among other things, like in the, the, these bullet points sort of advertising it, Satoshi had written, participants can be anonymous. And a lot of people believed that. And, and the Silk Road certainly like thrived on that principle. But by 2020, I could see that actually, if you could decipher, if you could crack the blockchain, basically, and find patterns in it, then actually you could trace Bitcoins and other cryptocurrencies, almost all of them, in fact, in some ways far more easily than you can trace transactions in the traditional finance system. And that, in fact, you know, uh, it took me a while to realize this, but years earlier, this small group of detectives first in the research world and then in the tech industry and then uh, in law enforcement had figured this out like long before I had and had used cryptocurrency tracing as this kind of incredibly powerful investigative technique to surprise that whole dark web underworld and take down one massive criminal operation after another in this like escalating spree of busts. So, you know, that is like how I came, you know, I did this sort of like strange path from being really fascinated by the potential of the anonymity and untraceability of the dark web to realizing that like that untraceability had this fatal flaw and uh, that actually created an even more interesting story, which is the story of this latest book that I've, mm. I've published, Tracers in the Dark. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Now, when Bitcoin first was released, you were still working for Forbes? Or were you... Right, yeah. You were still working for Forbes. Okay, yeah. and when it first came out... I remember. I remember you mentioned in your book that you you interviewed um, or you attempted to interview N Satoshi Nakamoto, but you yeah. interviewed somebody else. How did that well, go? The person that I first found out about Bitcoin from, and this is like back when Bitcoin was worth a dollar, and you know, I, I I wrote the first print magazine piece about Bitcoin that, um, for Forbes, and I called it. I called the head. You know, the headline of that piece was cryptocurrency, and I thought that I was clever, even like coming up with that phrase. It wasn't like a thing anybody had had heard of. And um, the first person that I had heard about it from was Gavin Andreessen, who was kind of the you know one of the big early Bitcoin developers. Had worked closely with Satoshi Nakamoto, but only communicating with him or her, whoever Satoshi is, by email. I mean, the you know 
Satoshi's identity remains one of the great mysteries in the history of technology. Who do you think he really is? Oh or is God. it a, like is it a I group have... of people? Like if you were to just if you were to speculate, like I know you don't know, but if you were to have some like dying guess, who would you say it was? Oh, man. You know, I have almost like tried to stop thinking about it because <laughs> I have I have gone down that that particular rabbit hole um, multiple times. I once thought that I had found Satoshi when, in fact, I, I th once thought I th once thought that Satoshi was Hal Finney, the second ever developer of Bitcoin, the, who actually received the first Bitcoin transactions from Satoshi. Hmm. They worked together early on. Hal Finney, sadly, died died of ALS, uh, Luke Gehrig's disease, who was paralyzed and, and passed away uh, around 2014. But I interviewed him on his deathbeds. You know, oh, he was wow. fully paralyzed, could only communicate with me with his eyebrow movements and with like typing through his eye movements, which was very painful and slow. Um, but he denied being Satoshi and he's, he, his family showed me some evidence that he was not. They showed me some of his communications with Satoshi that would have been quite hard to fake um, you know, retroactively, I looked at, uh, there, are, there are other reasons, um, I should say that, like, I came to believe that Hal Finney was not lying to me when he said that he was not Satoshi. Um, but I thought at one point that I had found Satoshi then, I once thought that I had found him in an, another guy, Craig Wright's, um, a, a really wild story that I, I truly don't want to talk about it anymore because he Craig Wright I think as I think I don't want to get sued by him as he has sued many people but I do not believe he is Satoshi and in fact I feel like I fell there for a strange trap that like somebody was trying to convince perhaps like investors or somebody that Craig Wright was Satoshi created a bunch of false documents somebody else unwittingly leaked those documents to me anyway long wow. crazy story um well, the reason I ask is because yeah. if there's anybody on this planet who knows who it is, it's got to be you. No way. I mean, <laughs> I, well, um, I, I I would think that, like, if anybody knows, it might be some of the characters, you know, in my book who have done these incredible tracing, um, you know, investigations. Mm. But I never heard from them that they had figured it out. I think if anybody knows, it would be the NSA, uh, who, mm. you know, for whom, like, almost anything digital is, like, the, you know the, that's their territory and they have incredible surveillance powers uh, i'm kind of surprised that like it hasn't i mean i'm not kind of i'm very it's, it's amazing that it hasn't come out in you know more than a decade now mm -hmm. um even from like some former intelligence person or who knows what like even intelligence agencies have not been able to figure out who satoshi is that just seems like so uncanny i mean I don't, I, I still, I think sometimes that it had to have been a group because it's just Bitcoin worked so well. Um, and it, you know, the smartest hackers that I know, you know, kind of would like examine it and think that they might've found a vulnerability and then, oh, that's a dead end. Like somebody thought of this ahead of me. And like that, I, I heard that enough times that it's like, that's just so difficult for one person to to create on their own. Mm -hmm. But if it were a group, that also just creates a secrecy problem. I mean, you know, like, mm -hmm. I don't know, two two people can keep a secret if one of them is dead, right? Exactly. Like, uh, so like, I just don't know what to think anymore. And I've, I've just driven myself crazy enough trying to figure it out uh, that I, 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 I'm ready to leave that one mystery. In fact, I kind of appreciate that, that there is one mystery left in the world 
even on the internet, you know, mm. and, and uh, I should say that like Satoshi said in that initial cryptography mailing list email, participants can be anonymous with cryptocurrency. I think that like it, that has proven to be true, but only for Satoshi himself. Like Satoshi has remained anonymous even while amassing a million Bitcoins. Um, because there was only one transaction, right? Well, because he received them in, in from mining, oh, mining yes. Bitcoins, okay, and then never spent any. He like I guess he sent some to people in test transactions, but mostly he just sat on his gigantic multi-billion-dollar fortune with like inhuman restraints. You know, um, I think some people even believe Satoshi might be dead him himself or herself or what or their themselves because mm -hmm. uh, who sits on tens of billions of dollars like that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, but uh, but I guess the 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 other half of that point I was trying to make is that everybody else essentially who's tried to be anonymous with Bitcoin over the years, practically speaking, has been unmasked at mm -hmm. some point, thanks to this surprising trait of cryptocurrency that actually you can trace almost everything that happens on a blockchain. Um, that was like the the real you know dramatic irony of this whole thing is that. Cryptocurrency turned out to be this kind of trap, I think, for people seeking financial privacy and for all sorts of criminals who were lured in to this, uh, to this, you know, honeypot, essentially, thinking that they could get away with every manner of crime, like, you know, dark web drug sales, massive thefts, money laundering. Eventually, you know, the, the book tells stories of, of essentially human trafficking or like uh, child sexual exploitation stuff. Mm. And so many of them have been caught on like a gigantic scale, thanks to the fact that the blockchain actually turned out to, to be this massive collection of evidence of every transaction they ever did, if you know how to kind of right. crack that code. Now, some of the stuff that you mentioned in your book, Tracers in the Dark, which is amazing, by the way, so like the story of the Silk Road and the story of Ross Ulbricht and, you know, the, the Alpha Bay story. A lot of people are familiar with these stories, but I feel like not a lot of people understand how these things went down and how the how law enforcement was able to track these guys down. Yeah. You know, and, and I feel like that's something that is a re, is a, one of the biggest revelations in your book. It, it really does a great job of explaining exactly how this was done. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, for the Silk Road, you know, I had like this weird perspective on it because I interviewed the Dread Pirate Roberts before he the, the creator of the Silk Road who went by the pseudonym, the Dread Pirate Roberts, this like first dark web drug kingpin. I interviewed him um, my, myself before he was caught, before he was identified and, and like turned out to be this 29 year old guy, Ross Ulbricht in Was Texas. the guy you interviewed, sorry to interrupt, mm -hmm. but when you interviewed Dread Pirate Roberts, are you sure that was Ross or was it, could that have been somebody before him? It's a fair question. I think it was Ross. Mm -hmm. um, I think that like, you know, I've, I've turned that question over a, a lot of times since then. Of course, when I spoke to the Dread Pirate Roberts, or didn't, didn't speak to him, I said, by the way, I said he was caught in Texas. He was caught in California, but he's from Texas. Mm. And, and when I communicated with him, that was over the Silk Road anonymous messaging system. Just want to be really clear. Like I was exchanging text messages over the Tor anonymity system with him, basically. Uh, so you never know exactly. And I, I got the impression 
just sometimes I, I think I, I interviewed him for like four or five hours and wow. And I got the impression that he was maybe even consulting with somebody as he, as he talked to me, like he would take a while with some answers. Um, and I know that, that the Dread Pirate Roberts had this kind of second in command who called himself Variety Jones and had, and based on like I covering his trial, Ross Ulbricht's trial, Eventually, Ross Ulbricht's laptop, by the way, was seized with all of his chat records on it. He tried to, uh, he had full disk encryption on his laptop. And if he had just been able to close the lid of it, mm -hmm. um, he could have protected all of that evidence, which I think made him kind of uh, overconfident in how much, how much he could store on that laptop. Uh, but the FBI, in this elaborate sting operation in the San Francisco library, grabbed his laptop out of his hands mm -hmm. with an undercover agent got everything so you could see his conversations with um variety jones and all of the other people working for him in his chat logs which is crazy that he kept those uh and and uh you could see the variety jones at one point suggested this idea like call yourself the dread pirate roberts then if you're ever caught you can tell this whole story you know like from the princess bride the movie which where that name comes from that that's just the kind of rotating handle that like right. it's inherited by one uh kingpin of the Silk Road after another. And you can say like you acquired it from somebody else who created it and then and then pretend to be the person who created it, but then sold it. And then that'll cover your tracks. You, I mean, it was really brilliant, honestly, mm -hmm. like as, as cover stories go. So you can actually see the Dread Pirate Roberts, probably Ross, almost, I think almost certainly Ross, doing this in my interview with him where he says, actually, no, I didn't create the Silk Road. I bought it from its creator. Mm. Um, and that seemed to be laying the groundwork for the defense he actually would use in his trial, which is that uh, Ross Ulbricht, you know, in, in court said, I just created the Silk Road as an economic experiment. Then it was bought from me by the Dread Pirate Roberts. Right. Um, and like the real criminals who ran the Silk Road and turned it into this giant narcotics, you know, bazaar, um, tricked me in the last minute into coming back and running it again just before I was caught. You know, it's kind of like, it's a bit of an unlikely story, um, not just a bit, it, it was a pretty <laughs> weird defense. And it kind of fell apart when, this was a big surprise at trial, um, the prosecution put a guy on the stand who tr had traced all of the Silk Road's transactions on the blockchain and showed that for its basically for years, money had been flowing, Bitcoins, from the Silk Road server to Ross Ulbricht's laptop. So he was in charge of it for all of that time, including the time when I, or he at least was like reaping the profits from it all of that time, including when I interviewed the Dread Pirate Roberts. Uh, you know, this, I, 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 uh, I know a lot of people you know, uh, ha are really skeptical of these stories. I have tried to apply as much skepticism as I can as well to this notion that Ross Ulbricht is the Dread Pirate Roberts or the only Dread Pirate Roberts. A lot of people are particularly skeptical. I just want to air this out like right away, like uh, about the claim that he had people killed, right? Mm. And say like he was never actually charged with that crime in court, which is true. And that is, he was charged with like, you know, this kingpin statute of kind of like a general, um, you know, running of a massive criminal enterprise and conspiracy and things, but he was not charged in the case that was actually brought to trial with murder, even though he's accused of like having 
paid for the killings of one of his employees and like people who he thought threatened the Silk Road and scammed him and stuff. Yeah. Um, I was skeptical of that too. And I think that in all fairness, that absolutely should have been tried in court given that now he is serving this life sentence yeah, in federal he's, prison. He's serving the same sentence as El Chapo, is that right? I mean, he's, he's it's it's a life sentence. Like it's, it's the I maximum. Thought it was, I thought it was double, double life. life. Yeah. Yes, yes, double life, you know, uh, and uh, may never see the light of day again. And I think that that is unjust, just to be clear. I think that's mm -hmm. a crazy over sentencing. Um, especially given that he was not actually convicted of, of murder or attempted murder or conspiracy to commit murder or mm -hmm. anything. Um, but the same day that, that in tri his trial, which I attended like every minute of in a Manhattan courtroom, like That's the same wild. day that like the prosecution um, showed that they could trace the Silk Road cryptocurrency from the server to his laptop, they could also, sh they also showed transactions from his laptop to and a, a would-be contract killer for the these alleged murders, you know? And they were timed exactly right. They were the exact amounts. You could see his chat logs where he's saying to like somebody he thought was a hell's angel who was going to do these killings for him. Okay, here's the money. And then you see it on the blockchain. So, and I, I, I can see those transactions myself. I don't even have to right. depend on like a source to tell okay. me that. I can look at the blockchain and see that stuff. That's the power of cryptocurrency tracing. I mean, it's, and, and Ross, I'm sure thought that these transactions were untraceable and anonymous. And it's the opposite. Like I, a journalist can, can look at the receipts basically, you know, on the blockchain. Um, so. Don't you have to know his wallet address though? Right. So, and those did come from the prosecution to be clear, but they were, you know, they were aired out in, those were, those were shown in court. The defense had a chance to say, no, those are not his addresses. And they did not, you know? So it's like, you have to start doing some really convoluted thinking to imagine that A, Ross was not the Dread Pirate Roberts when I interviewed the Dread Pirate Roberts, um, and B, even that he didn't try to have these people killed. Like, I am extremely sympathetic. I, not extremely. I guess I'm, I would say I'm more sympathetic to Ross Ulbricht than just about any journalist who's covered these stories. I, I thought that the Silk Road was an interesting experiment trying to reduce violence in mm. the drug trade, you know, by moving it into this virtual world, basically. And I thought that Ross was like an interesting principled person who collected ultimately millions and millions of dollars in drug money and never spent it and really believes in what he was doing as a kind of like political experiment. He saw himself as a revolutionary who was launching this like idealistic thing on the, uh, in a new world, you know, online. Um, but, I think that it's a story about kind of corrupted ideals of how Ross, despite his, his best intentions, um, was pulled into a situation where he felt like he had to do extremely dark and immoral things to protect the experiment that he had begun, you know? Mm. Um, and that is tragic, but like, I don't, I, I, I do believe that Ross tried to, that Ross did those things, that mm. Ross did run this, massive drug trade for better or worse. Some people I think probably still think that that was a good a good thing. And then other, you know, and then I also think that he actually tried to have people killed, which is hard to defend. The interesting thing about the Silk Road too is, you know, the debate, was it, was it a good thing or was it a bad thing? Because obviously we're talking about 
laws. It's a, it was illegal. But if you look at the way it worked, you have drug dealers and you have drug buyers and the drug dealers are reviewed on how good their product is. And then sometimes and then some of those interviews with the drug dealers on that deep web documentary, they're talking about like, you know, I wouldn't sell. I could tell this guy was a, a newbie or a rookie. This guy had never bought shit on here before and he was trying to buy these drugs. And I know that these drugs are probably way too hard for him. So I said, go do your reading and come back to me when you read it. It seemed like there was at least some sort of code of ethics within that world. And people wanted to, you know, you wanted to take care of your reputation and not sell bad drugs. And it seemed like it was a net good. Yeah. You know, <clears throat> it's, it's a super fascinating argument. I do think that there, you know, some people wanted to describe the Silk Road as like this evil underworld where there was no good. Um, that is definitely incorrect. You know, people described that there was child abuse on the Silk Road. There was not. See, people said there were there was contract killing for sale on the Silk Road, which is not even true. Ross had to like go find his own contract killers if that's you know what he what he did. So, um, but I but to say that it's a net good is really difficult to say. Like I I just don't. Um, I, I can see the good. I can see how like it's um you know for instance. There, there cannot be any violence in in the drug trade. You can't get scammed. You can't be, um, you can't even be sold as easily like fake drugs or laced, whatever. Right, you exactly. Know, stamped Fentanyl. on whatever, because there's reviews and ratings, as you said. I mean, mm -hmm. it was, it is an amazing thing. If I was going to buy ecstasy like today. I would buy it on the dark web because right. you know I've I've been told that there's like fentanyl in everything like all sorts of things right. uh, when you buy them whatever in like the bathroom of some club exactly so like uh, the Silk the, the Silk Road invented this new model of sales you know that was really smart and accountable um, on both sides you know to the the buyer and the seller um, it also like made really hard dangerous drugs available to people who otherwise would not have had them i think in some cases i i as i said like sat in the trial i heard the parents of like um people talk about their their kids um adult kids and young kids too who overdosed on opioids and things that were bought from the silk road some guy who had kicked the habit he'd moved like somewhere uh you know far farther away from like a major city where he didn't think he would be tempted as much but then he learned about the Silk Road and he saw that like it's still possible to 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 like scratch that itch and overdosed and died. You know, I, I actually don't think that like um like the it's it's more the the I think a, a better argument, and I don't really want to like defend the judge in this case who 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 gave him this draconian crazy double life sentence, but she in that sentencing uh hearing also like read this this very long statement explaining her sentence and i thought it was really smart at points she she said yes you ross um you did reduce the violence in like one part of the drug trade which is like the retail part like the buyer and the ultimate uh the seller and the ultimate buyer you know at the very end of that supply chain basically mm -hmm. but if you go further up the supply chain um, that's where the real violence is happening in Mexico, in like Afghanistan or wherever, where like uh, or wherever these drugs are produced. And by expanding the market, by finding like a new way for people to sell billions of dollars worth of drugs, you actually you re you cut out the violence in one part, but you expanded it overall, and you did nothing about the violence further up the supply chain. So you probably have added, uh, n you know, 
in sort in terms of like net harm to the world. You know, I, and I think that that's an, a compelling idea that by finding like a new way to expand just like the total volume of drug sales, you know, maybe you, you have, and, and of course, like the people selling on the dark web have to have a supplier, right? Um, you know, maybe you have actually caused harm, you know, and, and Ross, to, you know, I think that the answer, of course, is like, well, we should have, we should legalize all these drugs. I am pretty sympathetic to those sorts of arguments. Ross actually told me in our interview, or rather to Dread Pirate Roberts did, that he didn't believe in drug legalization. Um, and that that is only just like a new way for like the state to control these things, to tax them. And as the sort of libertarian he was, he didn't even want to see drugs legalized. Hmm. He, he, he wanted just the, the black market underworld to expand and, and take over everything, you know? So like lawlessness. Exactly. Like total crypto anarchy as like, you know, <laughs> as, as cypherpunks call it. Wow. Y you know, the thing about Ross's story is most people I talk to, they just think of him as this Dalai Lama type character, mm. you know, like he's just this big, you know, idealistic that's just, savior of the world. It's fascinating that that's who you talk to. Cause you know, like I would say that most of, of America, most of the media, not to like, you know, cast dispersions on my colleagues, like think of the Silk Road as like, you know, drugs, death, the dark web. Like those are the headlines you see on mm -hmm. like the cover of magazines about the Silk Road when at the time that Ross was arrested. So, um, you know, it's interesting. I've, I've tried to, to just like sort of maintain my like mental independence on this <laughs> and not be pulled into either, in either direction. I mean, you saw deep web where I was yeah. like, um, uh, made by my friend Alex Winter, who was, I think, really sympathetic to Ross. Yeah. And, um, oh, yeah, you can tell at the end of that with the interviews of him and everything. Yeah. <laughs> at the end of the documentary. And I'm like, I think I'm, you know, a degree or two more like in the middle uh, yeah. or like whatever. Uh, just I feel like I you got to look at what the Silk Road was, warts yeah. and all. And it was yeah. fascinating. It did come a place from a place of ideals, um, mm -hmm. but those ideals were corrupted to some degree, and like bad things happened, um, mm. and as as they will, like in that in that world yeah. of narcotic sales. I mean, that's um, I think of it also as kind of like the uh, I don't know, like the third season of The Wire, like Hamsterdam. You know, like Hamsterdam was an interesting experiment. <laughs> Maybe I'm like losing you. I've never I'm, seen the wire. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, whatever it, but it was this basically like, you know, a part of Baltimore in this story was like carved out and drugs were basically de facto legalized. And the result was that like the rest of Baltimore, like crime dropped hugely, but people overdosed and died. And that was like in Hamsterdam, this one little neighborhood was a hellish place. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that is in some ways like a you know, kind of very rough, um, analogy of like, of what the dark web or what Silk Road might have become if it uh, was, you know, allowed to flourish. Right. I guess the question is, you know, the, the, the two main things are people can choose to take some sort of crazy illicit drug and kill themselves by taking too much or becoming addicted or falling down the falling down the rabbit hole. And or on the other hand, you have you know, people taking shit where they don't know what it is and it's laced with stuff and you don't know what the product you're getting is. Absolutely. I mean, and I think that, that like, seems like the, the more dangerous. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> I think that the consumer experience of the dark web 
is way superior. Yeah. I mean, like I have, um, I, I bought, I, I like for a Forbes article, like even I bought drugs on the Silk Road and like, it's an incredible experience. It was like amazing at the time anyway. And, um, you know, people say like, oh, is it cheaper? No, it's actually more expensive, but the premium right. that you paid was for the reviews and the ratings and this assurance that like you're getting what you pay for. How did that work? What was that process like buying it? Like you gotta, you gotta get in through the onion router, through Tor, and then you have to, how did that, can you explain the process of what it was yeah, like and what kind yeah. of drugs did you buy? Well, I won't talk about what drugs in total I've bought from the dark web, but 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 I for Forbes, I mean this was bizarre that Forbes let me do this, and they actually like I was going to do it as a sidebar and in, in print in the magazine, and they were like we can't publish that in the magazine. Like sixty five year old men read Forbes magazine, like uh, but you can we'll put it online. But um, I just bought like a gram of marijuana each from three different the Silk Road and two of its kind of copycat competitors at mm. the time. Um, just to show that what was possible. I mean, this was 2013 when that was, that seemed pretty like interesting and edgy. Um, I mean, people were like, had never heard of this stuff. So you would, yeah, you would like buy Bitcoins. I bought them from Coinbase uh, and uh, which was like kind of the easiest way to, the easiest exchange to use at that time. $5 a coin. <laughs> I can't remember. God. I mean, I think by 2013, it was like getting up into the hundreds eventually okay. would hit like, uh, over a thousand that year before its first a big crash or not the first crash, you know. Um, but uh, yeah, and, and uh, then you fire up Tor, the Tor browser, as you said. You like get onto Silk Road, and I, you, I think that you could probably search the the ClearNet, as they say, like the normal web, to find the URLs, which are these like long um, convoluted uh, URLs that end in .onion because these are like Tor hidden services is what they were called at the, at the time, which is like a website that runs on this anonymity software, Tor. You run Tor, they run Tor. You both kind of like put on, uh, I mean, like the analogies, you put on like a, a blindfold, you get like put into a van and like driven to a, a place where um, you can't like, be fault. You don't know where you are and you like meet in the middle mm. um, so that nobody knows like where the server is hosted. Nobody knows where you are. Um, it's completely anonymous on both ends. That's how tor that's how these the dark web works, right. basically. Um the the real I mean, I guess like the real technology is that your your web traffic is basically triple encrypted in three layers, and then it's kind of like bounced through three different computers run by volunteers in the Tor network around the world. Each of those computers can strip away like one layer of encryption, but not the others so that they can only see one step ahead. They can't like see around those blind corners to the next computer. And so, you know, after three hops, nobody can trace you from your origin to your destination. And the server on the other side does the same thing. Uh, they, they also triple, mm. you know, wrap there. <clears throat> the Tor stands for the onion router. So it's like, this is called onion routing because it's in layers, right. you know? And that's how it works. Like you meet in the middle, nobody can trace each other and uh, you like pay for your drugs and, and it goes into an escrow, which is very clever. You, the escrow is not released until you've got your stuff and you like finalize. You say like, okay, got, got my, my package. It was, here's a rating, here's a review. I release the escrow and the seller gets their money. That's one of the most sophisticated parts of it because the price of Bitcoin is so volatile and then we have this escrow and, feature where. And not only that, but like, I mean, the Dread Pirate Roberts like um, would cover 
he created like a feature where he would cover um, any like changes in the price due to volatility because dealers didn't like how volatile um, Bitcoin was. So like it, while the money was sitting in escrow, if it went up or down, he would like cover the difference, which is just like such a Wild. smart financial innovation um, <clears throat> because, you know, drug dealers are not trying to gamble or, you know, do speculative investment with their Bitcoins that are sitting in escrow. They just want their money. Mm. So like that's, I mean, you have to give credit to, <laughs> I mean, where it's due. The Silk Road was an amazing invention. Um, I think like a few people kind of realize how smart it was as a kind of financial innovation, mm. not, not just a, like the comp combining Tor and Bitcoin, which were kind of the two big ingredients, but like, the whole the whole thing was just so beautifully designed, and it, and it launched. You know, I, I think as hopefully we'll get into like a whole world uh, of follow-ons, mm. um, you know, copycats, innovation, evolution um, of this you know dark web drug kingpins that followed in in Ross's footsteps. Yeah. So this book, it seems like it's not just something that you just decided to start on one day. This book seems like it's been part of your entire career. It's just sort of like a summary of everything you've been following since the inception of Bitcoin. Well, you know, I didn't intend to ever, you know, in, in fact, actually around 2014, I was like trying to, to write a book just about the Silk Road and how, yeah. you know, and how crazy that story was and how at the time I thought that that book was going to be about how cryptocurrency is unlocking a new world of crypto anarchy and, and cybercrime. Um, and I couldn't sell that book, luckily. Like, um, I think because there had been like too much coverage of the Silk Road, yeah. too many other people writing their books. Nick Bilton's <laughs> book about the Silk Road is fantastic. Um, but I'm lucky in a way that, that, I, that I did not write that book because as I said, like uh, about, you know, seven, let's see, like six years after that, 2020 or so, I started to see, I mean, of course I knew that Bitcoins could be traced to some degree. Like I covered this really closely. I thought, I think everybody who was who in that in that smart like crypto cryptography world sort of could see that yes like oh Bitcoin is not actually as anonymous as it's supposed to be from the beginning, um, but it sort of seemed like if you were careful, if you never revealed your Bitcoin addresses publicly, if you put your transactions through like you know a few hops of like moving it from one trend one address to another to another before you spent it if you used laundry services all these tricks it seemed like you could make it pretty untraceable pretty private only in 2020 and did i start to see the department of justice um start crediting in their kind of announcements of of, ma uh, of major takedowns and busts and indictments this one company uh and they would they would say they would thank Chainalysis, hmm. this one cryptocurrency tracing firm. Just the fact that there was a cryptocurrency tracing company um, was, uh, I sort of knew about that, but I was like, oh, this, they're actually really active. They're kind of like, they kind of have their hands in a ton of these cases. So were they, were, were, was Chainalysis, was their sole premise just to work with the government and to help them trace these criminal this criminal activity, or did they have some sort of other utility in the marketplace? Well, the founder of, of Chainalysis is a fascinating guy. I mean, there's a few founders, but the, the original like guy who um, came up with the, the idea of the company, Michael Groniger, mm -hmm. this Danish guy, he's a, he's a fan of Bitcoin and he like believed in Bitcoin. But from the very beginning, he was like, no, this is not anonymous or untraceable. Like this, mm -hmm. um, I can, there's a whole blockchain here. You know, a, a, the blockchain is 
by definition, like a list of every transaction, every right. Bitcoin transaction ever. It's just between addresses rather than any identity. So mm. like these long convoluted like Bitcoin addresses don't look like they have anything to do with an identity in the real world. But he and actually he was he based a lot of his uh, his first uh, software on the, the tricks that had been published by Sarah Micklejohn, this researcher at the University of California, San Diego. He saw that you could find patterns he rather you know sarah found and he like kind of took this further you could find patterns in the blockchain and then he built a piece of software that could essentially like um implement these tricks to to create clusters to show that like sometimes thousands or even millions of addresses belonged to one person or service then to follow that money sometimes until it hit a cryptocurrency exchange where you know cryptocurrency exchanges where you trade bitcoins for dollars or vice versa they have know your customer requirements under us law they have to have identity mm -hmm. identity identifying information for their accounts mm -hmm. um but his idea in, in creating the first tool to trace cryptocurrency which he called reactor was that he would sell this to exchanges to like bitcoin exchanges he'd worked he had helped to found an, another exchange he was the cto there i think and um, he left to create Chainalysis with the, in the hopes of helping exchanges just know who their customers all are, like help them understand, like help them deal with these know your customer requirements, I think, in a kind of more automated way. Mm. Uh, like you probably want to know if you're an exchange, if you're helping to cash out dark web drug money. Right. Um, you know, at least like you may not want to know, but, <laughs> but like um, if the government is demanding that, you know, this is an easy way to do it. Mm. So that was his first like idea to pit he pitched it to exchanges and eventually like a lot of them did buy it. But his first customers, to his surprise, were law enforcement agencies. Wow. And he actually was just like in San Francisco and um was pitching this to exchanges. And then like he he a friend was like, Oh, you should talk to this prosecutor who um introduced him to uh this agent with an IRS criminal investigations in San Francisco named Tigreen Gambarian who was in some ways like the central detective of of the book he was oh, Tigran was the guy who came from Soviet Union yeah he well, he, okay. he grew up in Armenia but then in post-soviet Russia as well um had like a very tough childhood there I mean mm -hmm. like he, he truly like war-torn Armenia right um and it's a very interesting character like IRS criminal investigations is a weird place. Like, yeah. I don't think most Americans know about it even, but it's like this actual law enforcement agency within IRS. Um, and they, you know, I mean, they kind of have a chip on their shoulder about the fact that people don't even know this, but they, <laughs> they carry guns, they make arrests, they like carry out search warrants, they travel around the world and like, you know, get people extradited to be prosecuted in the United States and stuff. Like, you know, they are um, a full-blown, law enforcement agency, but like get no respect from <laughs> FBI and DEA or whoever. Um, Tigran, so Tigran was like, you know, um, a forensic accountant who carried a gun and like was kind of a like this weird mix of like nerd and tough guy uh, uh, who also had looked at Bitcoin from the beginning and um, saw him also like, there's this blockchain here. I don't believe this can be anonymous. I can see these transactions. And, you know, his first, he was actually the first to ever show that it was possible to trace Bitcoin within law enforcement. And this, mm. this was not in the Silk Road case in the traditional sense, but actually in the wake of the bust of Ross Ulbricht, 
which did not actually use cryptocurrency tracing. He was identified through other mistakes he'd made. Um, Tigran Gambarian basically like sat down, looked at the blockchain and showed that a DEA agent and a Secret Service agent who were involved in the investigation of the Silk Road had stolen money from the Silk Road in like as corrupt cops, basically. Actually, one of them had sold law enforcement information to the Dread Pirate Roberts. One of them uh, had stolen hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of Bitcoin from the Silk Road. But they these were two federal agents who, in their own investigation of the Silk Road, had thought that they could use the, you know, the false promise of this this fake idea that Bitcoin is untraceable, that they could just take any money they wanted to, that they could lay their hands on from the Silk Road mm. and get away with it. And Tigran was the one, Tigran at IRS Criminal Investigations was the one who sat down and showed, no, look, I can see that Karl Mark Force, this DEA agent, is receiving money from the Dread Pirate Roberts. Right. You know, like nobody thought that that was possible at the, in 2014 when he did this. Now, uh, is Karl Mark Force, is that one of the guys who set him up with one of the first murder for hires? Uh, exactly. I mean, that's <laughs> this is such a, a, a bizarre story. But yes, like Karl Mark Force um, had gone undercover on the Silk Road, had um, basically like pulled off this kind of amazing thing. He was not actually working with the New York group um, of FBI agents who would eventually take down the Silk Road. Mm -hmm. He was he was part of this Baltimore task force. Mm -hmm. And they, uh, you know, using him as an undercover agent did this crazy thing where they set it up where um, Ross would have like a shipment of cocaine sent to one of his employees uh, and Curtis Clark Green is his name. He was his grandpa in Utah. I mean, it's bizarre. <laughs> and and then have him arrested. They had him arrested when he receives the cocaine shipment and then essentially flipped him. And uh, like Ross, understanding that, that his employee had then been arrested, was like, okay, I guess we got to have this guy killed. And you can even see in the chat logs with Variety Jones, his sort of second in command, where he kind of reluctantly comes to this decision and orders he orders Karl Mark Force as an undercover agent, his under his undercover identity, who is, you know, at this point like very close with with the Dread Pirate Roberts, he orders Carl he asks rather Karl Mark Force to have his employee killed. So it's actually Karl Mark Force as an under undercover who is asked to kill uh, Curtis Clark Green, right? Bizarrely, and and so they they stage his murder for b the benefit of the Dread Pirate Roberts. They like take fake photos of him being tortured and killed, and they use like Campbell's soup to show the like <laughs> blood coming out of his mouth. Um, so one of the big things, one of the most interesting things to me about how they were able to manipulate the Silk Road was these these federal agents were able to so they were raiding these users home they were like somehow raiding the people who were users on the silk road taking all their shit taking over all their ship and not arresting them because if they arrested them that would sort of tip off dread pirate roberts that they could have that they could flip so they would purposely not arrest these guys who are working or a part of the silk road however they would take over their identities on the silk road is that right i think that they they managed this with the, the actually the, the other group the new york group managed this with one other of um the silk roads employees a woman actually who um a, a homeland security investigations agents uh working in that new york group did somehow identify a silk road staffer 
con um, convinced her rather than to avoid prosecution to give him her account. Mm -hmm. And then he became an undercover operative. Okay. Like working with the Dread Pirate Roberts. He, um, he never became aware of that. He was that was just like a successful um, kind of infiltration of the Silk Road right. that was used up until up into the very moment of, of Ross Ulbricht's mm -hmm. arrest. Um, that undercover, you know, um, agent was communicating with the Dread Pirate Roberts and, and like telling him, hey, can you log on to check out something? And then he logged on at this at the moment that the FBI was there with undercover agents ready to arrest him so mm. that they could make sure his laptop was open. Right. Uh, so, yeah, there were like so many different things happening. The, the whole Baltimore thing turned out to be like a total, you know, failed investigation. The Baltimore, uh, all of that stuff with the fake murder, everything was uh, didn't really get them any closer to identifying the Dread Pirate Roberts. So going back real quick to yeah. to when Karl Mark Force was was talking to Dread Pirate Roberts about um, Curtis, Curtis Green. Is that his yeah, name? Yeah. Um, and Dread Pirate Roberts basically said, you know, we need to kill this guy. Was Karl Mark Force sort of like inciting him or like pushing him down that path? Like, ooh, you got to be aware of this guy. You got to figure out what to do with this guy. Or was it just, did it all come? You know, it, he was not from what I can see in okay. reading all of the conversations. It was really Variety Jones who was oh, okay. um, his second in command. Ross was was kind of like, I don't know, like I've never had anybody killed before. I mean, the Dread Pirate Roberts, you can see this in his, and Variety Jones is the one saying like, you know, uh, if this were the Wild West, like this would be a hanging offense, you know? Right. He's like, honestly, if you can't do this, then I'm not sure if we can continue to work together. He's really pressuring him. And then amazingly, he turns to an undercover agent to, to get it done. In fact, the same <laughs> undercover agent who who arranged the whole situation. I mean, it is like so that just, was just luck. Shakespearean like coincidence. It's bizarre. Wow. Yeah. But this is like, you know, all just, uh, I just want to be clear, like, um, this story is is told in in American Kingpin. This is like um, a crazy. The story of the Silk Road is insane. I almost found it like difficult to get through it so that I could start to tell the new stuff. Right, um, which is which is that after all of that happened, uh, that's when Tigran Gambarian showed that this bizarre Baltimore investigation was corrupt as hell, and the way that he did that was by tracing Bitcoins, right. which was not like something that anybody had ever done before. Um, and this has not really been like highlighted in that in the Silk Road story that like that is how these corrupt agents were found. They too, like Ross Elbricht, fell for, they were seduced by this false promise of Bitcoin's anonymity. Mm -hmm. And not one, but two of these Baltimore agents independently, they didn't even know about each other, were trying to skim hundreds of thousands of dollars out of their work. Right. Um, they both went to prison. and. That was, in some sense, like the beginning of this new era of cryptocurrency tracing, like as this golden age of law enforcement investigation on the dark web. And what year did this happen? What year did they that, start to So that was this? 2014, 2014, the same okay. year that Chainalysis was founded um, by Michael Groniger. And then Michael Groniger and Tigran meet in San Francisco and mm -hmm. they become um, this kind of odd couple. Um, Chainalysis, in fact, and IRS criminal investigations become this partnership that uses cryptocurrency tracing to just like carry out, you know, just go on a uh, spree, like a bonanza of busts and takedowns over the years that follow and like solving many of the biggest kind of unsolved cases in mm. dark web and just like racking up a huge number of arrests. 
Yeah, it's like when you were explaining, um, what was the woman's name again, who had shit a warehouse and she was buying all this stuff from the Silk Road. Yeah, and that's Sarah Mickeljohn. Sarah Mickeljohn. Yeah, she was doing like this, like, like almost just taking these millions and millions of of wallet addresses and just like using patterns to sort of like place them in certain buckets and figure out which ones go where and how is she like what was her big revelation how what was her sort of uh value to yeah all of yeah this? so like this i don't know we're like rewinding about a year now okay. flashing back so like um 2013 is when sarah micklejohn at ucsd uh was like hmm i you know uh, she was a brilliant, you know, cryptography researcher, but she had not really looked at cryptocurrency. And she was like, you know, I wonder if this stuff is as anonymous as as people think it is. Um, and she took almost like this anthropological approach. Like, I wonder if I can just figure out like what people are doing with cryptocurrency. Uh, maybe I can just like figure out how many people even are using it, which nobody knew really. And <clears throat> she was the one who came up with these clustering techniques, um, basically like a few clever tricks to show like, um, that you know, certain addresses all must belong to the same person or mm. organization. Like one is, if you know, to spend bitcoins from an address. I don't know if you want to get into these like nerdy details. You tell me when to stop. Yeah. But like, to spend bitcoins from a bitcoin address, you have to have the private key for that address. Right. And so, um, if you create a multi-input transaction, as it's called, which like sounds complicated, but it's really just like sending um, bitcoins from lots of addresses at once in one transaction then you must control the private keys for all those addresses. Right. That means like you look at that multi-input transaction and you say, oh, all these addresses must have belonged to one person or to one service. And if you then like take that sort of fil like lens and like look at the whole blockchain for every multi-input transaction, you can immediately start to create clusters that show Oh, she, I think like she she showed like right away oh, there are there are maximum half as many people here or services as there are bitcoin addresses she like cut the whole blockchain in half right she and it's complexity an algorithm to... exactly yeah and then like that's that's that was trick number one kind of like an easy one then she came up with her own like that in fact that was something that was kind of like an open secret in the crypto world uh already at that point um but then she came up with another one which is like that when you spend bitcoins with many wallets, uh, you basically cannot spend a fraction of the coins in an address. You kind of like crack open the piggy bank, like the whole piggy bank of that address, and you send all the coins to whoever you intend to like receive part part of them, and then you get back change at a at a different address, mm -hmm. and that can make it like really difficult to follow the money because you don't know which is the recipient address and which is the change address. But she realized, oh well, the change address very often is recognizable because it's the new address, the one that was just like created to receive the change. The recipient address sometimes is, has been used before or it's old. So, you know, with that algorithm, that like little trick, she applied that across the blockchain and then could find like, oh, I can see like, here's like a fork in the road where everybody else didn't know how to follow the money, but I can follow it. I can follow it to the change address. Mm. And it's, that still belongs to the first person sending the money. That's his address. In fact, all of these change addresses are his address. I can sort of like follow this wad of cash as it like as bills are peeled off and handed to somebody and it keeps getting like taken back by the spender and put in a different pocket, but it's the same wad of bills, you know. And then eventually you see that that wad of bills like sent to a cryptocurrency exchange to be cashed out. And there you can send a subpoena. She right. knows like the law enforcement agency can send a subpoena to that exchange and identify somebody 
So like already she's like building like powerful tricks to follow the money and identify people that were not, you know, uh, previously like obvious to anybody in this world. And then she also, as you said, started doing these undercover transactions basically where, you know, she would put money into the Silk Road and take it out again. She never actually bought anything on the Silk Road, she says, um, but like she could have obviously. And and doing those undercover deals, she can see which addresses she's interacting with. And every time mm -hmm. she does that, she can sometimes like say, oh, this address belongs to the Silk Road. It's part of this big cluster. So that whole cluster is the Silk Road. Now I've identified like a million Silk Road addresses right. and I can see everybody interacting with them. Each one of those is a drug deal. You know, that is so powerful. And it was the first like real, like massive hole blown in this myth of Bitcoin's anonymity. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. That paper came out in late 2013. Tigran Gambarian read it before he traced these two corrupt agents' money. Right. Michael Groniger read it before he built a, a tool that like automated all these tricks, mm -hmm. you know, and um, started selling that to law enforcement. So that's like the true uh, kind of like you know, aha moment, right? Like this is possible. <clears throat> and, and then soon Chainalysis was the one that really built it into a company. I mean, it's very interesting, I think, to see that Sarah Micklejohn did not like become a professional cryptocurrency tracer or work with law enforcement. And um, that in part came out of her ambivalence about the like morality of this, or like, is it really um, a good thing that cryptocurrency can be traced? she saw it as you know as financial surveillance right. and she like i think in a really legitimate way like believes that that there are good uses of financial privacy that that is important cryptocurrency was meant to be an antidote to like fi to financial surveillance in the traditional finance world where every credit card transaction you ever make is like mm. extremely transparent to companies and governments who want to get that data for Groninger, so, there was obviously money involved yeah so we, you asked me too about like Groninger's motivations um, yeah. but i never quite like spelled it out like he he saw it really differently he was like well no cryptocurrency was never meant to be private you can look at like at th this is whole blockchain like nobody could have ever had like any idea that it was private which i think is not exactly right i think satoshi did think that it was meant that it could have that it had privacy properties mm -hmm. that were important but he was like this is this whole idea that it was anonymous you can it was just not there in the technology from the beginning and the great thing about cryptocurrency according to michael groniger is that it's transparent and you can see everything mm. and that's what's going to make this great and we're going to like you know kind of fuel that we're going to uh show how transparent it is by selling this tool that will allow anybody to trace not anybody, but his customers to, to, to trace cryptocurrency transactions. And we're gonna clean up the wild west of the crypto world and make it legitimate and you know hmm. um, respectable and legal. Uh, that's that's how Chainalysis sees these things. So when Groniger started first working with Gumbarian, 
what was sort of the first big case they started working on trying to crack? So Groninger, before even meeting um, Tigran, Tigran Gambarian, um, had taken on this this first case for chain analysis, kind of pro bono, um, on behalf of Mt. Gox, or actually the bankruptcy right. trustees of Mt. So Gox. So for people that don't know, can you explain what Mt. Gox was? Yeah, Mt. Gox was um, the first Bitco Bitcoin exchange. Uh, for a long time, it was the only one. And um, like I tried to buy like forty dollars worth of bitcoins from Mt. Gox when Bitcoin was worth a dollar. Like in, when I was you know working on my story about Bitcoin for Forbes, and it was like buggy and um, the transaction did not go through, and I like gave up, and I mm -hmm. you know probably lost millions and millions of dollars by not buying those bit those bitcoins at a dollar. But but Mt. Gox, you know, as buggy as it was, and it was kind of like always considered a little janky. It was the only way to buy and sell bitcoins for years. Um, Wasn't there a big like a criminal conspiracy that went down? There's a guy who lives like two hours south of here who was like largely involved with Mt. Gox and he went to prison. There was a big investigation. What the hell's his name? He has a podcast. I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to think of who that could possibly he, he's be. He's got glasses. Uh, fuck, he lives in Sarasota. Is, is is it the original creator? I don't know. I, I don't want to like say, what the take a his... guess at who went to prison. I got to like, look. I got to look. I got to look up his name. I know you know. I know who you know that who this guy is. Charlie Shrem. Oh, Shrem. Yeah, of course. Charlie Shrem. <laughs> yeah. Wasn't he involved with Mount Gox? I don't think he was. He was. Okay. He. Yeah, Charlie Shrem. Yes. It's an interesting guy. I met Charlie in New York, like uh, around the time I started covering Bitcoin, and um, he was a really nice guy. Um, I, I can't remember what his first company was. I think it was like a payment processor or something for the for, mm. for cryptocurrency. It turned out, you know, I, I I don't know the details of his case that well, but I think he was essentially um he was accused, I think, of working with the Silk Road mm. to launder money, okay. basically. I think that's what he went down for. But he's out okay. of prison. Yeah. Um you know, I, I don't I, I didn't cover Charlie's I can't, I can't remember his like the details of his case that well. It's, I did cover it. It's some of it, but it's been years. Um, I don't know what it. I don't remember the details either. All I just remember, I remember him being associated with Mount Gox somehow. Well, like, everybody be, was kind of. I mean, like he yeah. he Mount Gox was like the only game in town for right. years. It was the only way to get cryptocurrency. And I remember I actually was going to like write a. I wanted to write like a big feature about Mt. Gox for Forbes. Like, look at this. You know, mm. look at this massive business at the center of Bitcoin. Um, and people warned me, like, don't do that. That's this place doesn't. This place is shady. It's not going well. Um, like they just don't know what they're doing. And then in 2014, sure enough, like Mt. Gox went bankrupt. Like suddenly, just had lost everybody's bitcoins. Just free, froze all withdrawals. And they said that they had been hacked. A lot of people didn't believe them. A lot of people thought like, oh, the Mark Carpellis, this kind of weird eccentric. French CEO living in Japan had stolen all the money. That's what people thought. Um, and Michael Groniger agreed to take on the case uh, on behalf of the bankruptcy trustees in Japan for Mt. Gox and figure out where all of the missing Mt. Gox money had gone mm -hmm. um, through cryptocurrency tracing. And right. this was like half a billion dollars of Bitcoin at the time. I mean, much more now, uh, you know, um, and um, he basically just to like cut the story short like he traced that money to another bitcoin exchange he showed that it it had been stolen um by hackers essentially mm -hmm. uh and that it had not been embezzled you know by mount gox's own staff 
that he, he actually showed that it seemed to have been taken by people in Russia's time zone was his first clue. Hmm. And then it had been cashed out through another cryptocurrency exchange, like a newer one called BTCE, that had by that point this reputation as a kind of black hole of money laundering. Like Mt. Gox would follow money anti-money laundering laws. Like you have mm -hmm. to get people's identifying information to cash out their money. BTCE was this mysterious exchange hosted like nobody knew where, by whom, um, and it had no know your customer anti-money laundering requirements. So it had become like this magnet for all kinds of criminal cryptocurrency, right. including it turns out it had cashed out. It had been used to launder the half billion dollars of stolen Mt. Gox money, Michael oh, Groninger wow. showed. So at the same time, T. Gambarian was investigating BTCE because it looked shady, mm -hmm. shady as hell. And he had taken on that case and so their cases kind of converged again in this bizarre way and like uh it turned out tigering through like other investigative means not cryptocurrency tracing but like more traditional law enforcement stuff tracing like ip addresses and um seizing the btce server which turned out to be in virginia um was able to show that um, the same person cashing out all those Mt. Gox coins into BTCE was also one of the creators of BTCE. That in fact, BTCE had been created, this whole cryptocurrency exchange had been created just as a way to launder this, the loot from this giant heist of Mt. Gox. And then once the, once the creators of BTCE had, had created this kind of trading platform to launder this half billion dollars, they were kind of like, well, we might as well keep it running. This is actually a profitable business. And BTCE became like, you know, started laundering all of the, all these other kinds of cryptocurrency from criminals around the world. Mm -hmm. um, but it was all the same. It was like BTCE, um, the, the creator of BTCE, one of them, and the sort of money man for the Mt. Gox hacking operation were one guy. And they showed that it was this Russian man, Alexander Vinnick. And he... They had to keep that secret for years, but he eventually went on vacation in Greece, was arrested, served prison time in France, has now been extradited to the US and is facing trial here. So I should say, like, I guess wow. he's, you know, innocent until proven guilty on, on some of these charges, but he was convicted of money laundering in France. So, um, but that was like the first major case where mm. they solved this biggest mystery in cryptocurrency at the time, like this missing half billion dollars. They basically vindicated the CEO of Mt. Gox, who was thought to have taken that money. They showed yeah. that it really was a Russian hacker who'd taken it, uh, more or less. And um, they took down BTCE, which turned out to be kind of this treasure trove of tracing also, because once you have that server, that would be like, they later turned out to be this wealth of information about who was cashing out money. They could get sometimes IP addresses and things from that server and and like learn about some of the people who thought that they were anonymously cashing out stuff through mm. this this completely like black market exchange. Um, but that was kind of the beginning of this like golden age of cryptocurrency tracing where IRS criminal investigations and chain analysis and eventually DEA, FBI, everybody um, has used this massive, like once kind of secret technique to, as a super weapon to just mm. like go after the biggest criminals on the dark web and, and in that whole world of like the internet's underground, basically. So Vinnick was a Russian guy. Mm -hmm. What well, is so wild? Is he got? Is he the guy who was a former credit card scammer too? 
I, I've been told that like he has a, a past that he was sort of known. Um, you know, I, I didn't want to like, I guess I, this is all a, a little thin because I have only heard it from like a couple people and I don't see it in court records or anything. Um, but he is sort of, he, I was told, you know, allegedly, I guess he, he had a, a history as a credit card fraud money man, like the one mm -hmm. who would do the laundering once you, um, who would help you cash out basically. Mm -hmm. And, and so I think you might be thinking though of Alexander Kaz, who was like oh, the yeah. real credit card right. fraudster who becomes like a massive, like right. dark web kingpin. You know, we can get to that. Yes. Um, yeah. No, cause I've had, I've had a, a credit card scammer on here before and he was telling me, you know, when he was in his peak of, you know, buying these credit cards and manufacturing these fake phony credit cards and basically uploading people's money onto them. He said that everyone he was doing business with was in Ukraine. Yeah, I have no and doubt. And Ukraine is like a hotbed for this kind of stuff. I think that Ukraine is not like a great place to do this stuff anymore because right. Ukraine has, I mean, Ukraine has corruption problems and there's no doubt, but like Ukraine has become, you know, it's it sort of shifted its its alliances and is more cooperative with Western law enforcement than it maybe used to be. Mm. Now Russia, but I mean, not now, but Russia remains uh, behind a kind of like, I was going to say Iron Curtain. It feels like rude to, to kind of like anachronistic to say that. But like um, <laughs> there is like a, a barrier, though, like you can get away with so many kinds of cyber crime, ransomware, like uh, dark web, drug, whatever, dark web, cyber crime of all kinds, like uh, beyond that border with total impunity. That's what Alexander Vinnick was. from inside Russia's border? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, but Alexander Vinnick made the mistake of traveling, you know, to Greece right. and uh, like these kind of undercover agents like closed in on him on a, this beautiful Greek beach and arrested him like and like um, that and that uh, yeah was like a rare instance when one of these like massive um, criminals of the Russian underworld was actually like laid hands on. I think I'm sure that that like. Uh, these stories kind of resonate within that world and they're learning like, do not go on vacation to Greece, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, like, uh, should we get into Alexander Kaz then? Like, yeah, yeah, so explain to people, like when did Alpha Bay first come on the map and what was Alpha Bay? Was it basically just a, a reaction to Silk Road going down or was it like, it was obviously way bigger than Silk Road, but was it essentially yeah, the same yeah. thing? Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting. We had the whole conversation about like the ideals of the Silk Road, mm. and um, you know, so, and in fact, like when the judge in in Ross Ulbricht's case sentenced him to life, double life in print in prison, she was trying to send a message like, "Don't follow in this guy's footsteps." That did not work. Like, in fact, it, yeah, it just right. brought more attention to the Silk Road, and you know, created more copycats. The Silk, and then like subsequently, like. There was just this power vacuum that was filled by mm -hmm. one dark web market after another, each kind of like vying for supremacy. But then, um, and a lot of them would just like, were, you know, scammers. They would just like get big enough and then steal everybody's money and run away. That happened. That's called an exit scam. It mm -hmm. happened like a couple of times. Some of them just disappeared. A couple of them were taken down by, by law enforcement because they made like uh, dumb mistakes. Um, but then, yes, like Alpha Bay came on, on the scene and uh, did not go away. It, it launched in 2014, but by like 2016, it was not only the biggest dark web market, 
but the biggest dark web market in history. It had like surpassed the peak of any previous market. And part of it's a uh, part of what made it kind of like stick in that way was that its founder, this this mysterious kingpin named Alpha O2, who went by Alpha O2, was as you said a um, a credit card fraudster, a known credit card fraudster with a reputation who had like sold a guide to credit card fraud even on online. And um, and so Alpha Bay initially just sold credit card hacking tools, sold stolen credit card information. It was like a cybercrime market. But then Alpha O2's sort of innovation was to combine that with the narcotics dark web, like to which was which is actually much more profitable. Mm. And so Alpha Bay became this like one stop shop for like stolen hacking uh, tools. Sorry, stolen ha hacked information, hacking tools. Um, you could like search for like very specific stolen credit cards in your area to like better defraud people or whatever. And then it also had, you know, heroin and fentanyl and everything imaginable mm. on the drug side. And it did grow eventually to be 10 times the size of the Silk Road. Wow. Uh, and the, you know, and Alpha O2 was like this, this kind of like mysterious and seemingly untouchable kingpin of this like growing dark did, web did market. Did he have like a public persona like Dread Power Roberts did or like this well, mystique about him? Yeah, this was what was interesting. Like, you know, he, he, um, yeah, it, he first of all had no ideals. It was pretty clear. He was a, a criminal who just wanted to make as much money as possible through Alpha Bay. And as soon as, as Alpha Bay started to become giant, he kind of like, instead of like th um, the way that, you know, the Dread Pirate Roberts behaved was like, he was this political leader of a movement. He would post these manifestos and love letters and he did an interview with me and like, you know, <laughs> and uh, he had like a Dread Pirate Roberts book club where he would read about like Austrian libertarian yeah. economics and stuff. And this guy and, did like a real gangster. And this guy, yeah, he just like, once he once he was making millions and millions, he um, he just slipped into the shadows. He actually changed his name from Alpha O2 to just admin. He said like, I'm not gonna, I will no longer be like communicating with, with customers or sellers on mm. alpha bay you can talk to my right hand man you know d mm. who is d snake uh which is like extremely to me that's like a real criminal that's like somebody who is smart and just motivated by survival and money you completely know? take take ego out of it right yeah exactly um it turned out he was kind of like getting his like ego outlet elsewhere <laughs> we can talk about that in a minute um but like it and also, he would sign off his messages before he disappeared, basically, with Russian language, like, like he would write, be safe brothers in Russian at the end of his messages. There were rules for Alpha Bay. I mean, there were very few rules. There were none of the Silk Road's rules about only victimless crime, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, but there was one rule that you could only sell hacked information if it didn't come from Russians or former Soviet countries. Mm. So like... There was, it seemed like it was this tradition, like this is very common with Russian cyber criminals. There are rules to prevent Russian law enforcement from coming after you uh, and you just target the West. And that way you say, you kind of don't shit where you sleep, you know? Oh, okay, so gotcha. it was a sign that everybody thought Alpha O2 and Alpha Bay were in Russia and that they might truly be beyond the reach of Western law enforcement. Mm. And that this was gonna be like the one that will never, you know, as, as I talk to agents and prosecutors, you know, they would say like, this is not, this This might be like um, the untouchable one. One of them called him like the, 
the Michael Jordan of the dark web? Like, what if he's just perfect? What if what if he's just so good at this that we'll never catch up with him? Mm. It's not like gonna you know it's not gonna be the same story as with Ross Ulbricht. Um, yeah, but they uh, that around that time, um, this was like late 2016 when Alpha Bay was truly taking off and and growing into this unprecedented like giant bazaar of, of drugs and crime. Um, that is when a tip came into the DEA in Fresno that uh, was basically this email address. And it turned out that in the in Alpha Bay's very first days online, before anybody was paying attention to it, its user forums, uh, when you signed up, you would get a welcome email. And that welcome email contained the email address pimp underscore Alex under, uh, at hotmail, uh, pimp underscore Alex underscore 91 at <laughs> hotmail.com. Um, and somebody like this one anonymous source had recorded, had kept that email. Mm. Uh, this, that, you know, that email leak was fixed very quickly, but this source had like held on to that email for years, two, more than two years, and then sent it to this DEA agent in Fresno. And that was the, uh, by like kind of following that email address, um, this DEA agent and the prosecutor in that office, whose name was Grant Rabin, um, the DEA agent has asked me not to like talk about his name, but he, but, um, they found that other places and were eventually able to show that belonged to Alexander cause this French Canadian guy, pimp Alex 91, like the 91 is his birth year. Jeez. He was really young. Um, and he, uh, they could see like through his family's social media his like in-laws social media posts really that he um was a web developer but he had moved to bangkok and and like his his he married a thai woman and her family had like posted photos of him with a lamborghini uh his he had like a villa in phuket and stuff and he sort of posed as like a early cryptocurrency investor mm. and web developer who just had this money from like buying in early to bitcoin um but they had, you know, a, the, their first lead that he was perhaps Alpha O2. And uh, it was a pretty, you know, it was like a, a strong lead, but they almost like didn't believe. All based on that email address. Exactly. And and they thought to themselves like, yeah, this is amazing. Um, it's almost too good to be true. Uh, is somebody setting this guy up? Is he being framed by the real Alpha O2? Um, and it was just around that time that, in fact, like independently, completely um, not th these two FBI agents in Washington, D.C., who asked me to call them just Ali and Aaron. Um, they were totally independently looking, using Chainalysis's software um, at the Alpha Bay cluster, like this constellation of 2.5 million addresses, Bitcoin addresses that Chainalysis had figured out belonged to Alpha Bay. They didn't know about what was happening in Fresno, but they thought like, why don't we like find a way through cryptocurrency tracing alone to figure out who Alpha O2 is, which no, you know, nobody had ever done that. Nobody had ever like identified a dark web kingpin with crypto tracing, but they had this idea um, that like when an exit scam happens, as I mentioned, like mm -hmm. uh, when the administrator of a dark website like just steals everybody's money. Every time that happens, the whole dark web freaks out and everybody warns each other, like, pull your money out. Like, don't don't keep your don't keep any cryptocurrency on a, a market that you're not about to spend right away, because it's not a safe place to leave your right. money. Right. Um, and 
the, they realize like the only person who is not going to be freaked out and pull their money out of those wallets when uh, an exit scam happens is the boss himself, the admin. The one who controls it. Exactly, right, the one who controls the whole market. So they started kind of, in, I guess, in a similar way to Sarah Mickeljohn, just kind of using that idea to scan like a big chunk of the blockchain, just the the Alpha Bay cluster within Chainalysis's, you know, software. And they found exactly this, like um, some collections of like big troves of crypto that had sat unmoved even as exit scams happens. And then eventually, like some of them had been later moved out of those addresses, sent through like some hops, and then eventually ended up at exchanges. They found one massive um, amount that had gone to an exchange and they sent a subpoena to that, to that exchange. Only after sending that subpoena did they kind of through the grapevine hear this tip about Alexander Kaz. And um, after learning that like, you know, Fresno was onto this, this weird French Canadian guy in Bangkok, only then did they get the results of their subpoena and like, lo and behold, the holder of that account that had cashed out these, these coins from Alphabet was belonged to Alexander Kaz. That was like real proof that he was Alpha O2. They traced the, you know, the millions of dollars in profits of this dark web drug lord and showed that they flowed out to this exchange and were being cashed out by Kaz and his wife in some cases. So now they had like, you know, kind of nailed to the wall this mm -hmm. theory that had just been totally unchargeable previously. And they had their guy. Where was he located? He was in Bangkok. He was okay. Yeah. yeah. You said that a um, hundred times. I don't know. Yeah, but he like um you know, but that was just the beginning. I mean, the right. the the that was how they they had identified him. They still had to kind of like get him dead to rights in the same way that they did that the FBI had with Ross Ulbricht, which was not easy because like Cos mm. was smart. He despite that that email slip up, um, which he you know which was brief but really uh, kind of um, just like head slapping like amazing mistake to have made. Like um, he was smart and careful and he had learned from Ross Ulbricht, like, yes, you encrypt your laptop um, so that if you just close the lid, like, it, you never, um, you know, it, it, if, if you just close the lid, rather, like, every secret on it is scrambled such that no law enforcement agency will be able to decrypt it in right. like, all of human, you know, many human lifespans. <laughs> but um, he had learned that you never, like, work in a public library or a public place of any kind. You don't, he didn't, he didn't open his laptop outside of his home, which was like in this, uh, you know, a house in like behind a gate, behind a wall, right. in the outskirts of Bangkok. Like the logistics of, of getting that laptop open and unencrypted to really catch him red-handed. very hard. Is, it was gonna be like a real challenge. Um, but you asked me like, you know, where, where what, uh, he didn't like, did, did he not kind of like have the public ego of the Dread Pirate Roberts? Yes. It turns out yes. that he was posting online really, you know, flurried, like crazy. Um, he was very prolific, but under a different pseudonym, which mm. was kind of his like pickup artist, sex addict pseudonym. Mm. He was on this pickup artist forum, um, Rushvi, and there he, he had this handle Romeo. Like he, you know, enjoys. <laughs> yes, he was like a fan of unprotected oh, sex, as you might. What a fucking like, dork! Imagine, yeah, and he was. He would. I mean, he just had like endless um, numbers of extramarital affairs and live blogged them. Basically, like mm. he would just like 
pick up Thai women in his Lamborghini from like 7-Eleven or whatever, and then go have sex with them. And then just write up in this like just, <laughs> it was called the I Just Had Sex thread of like uh Rouge v. so he's picking the, up prostitutes and then writing about it well like posting I think about he, it he was not even that like picky like he he was just like picking up women from the parking lot of 7-eleven whoever they were like oh um, and God. you know i don't think he had like a, that hard of a time unfortunately because he was he was projecting wealth he was yeah. a white dude who, which just kind of signifies money unfortunately um in thailand and um and yeah, I mean, and he was extremely manipul manipulative with women and a misogynist. And, uh, you know, these posts are like some of the grossest shit I've ever read. And I read like everything that yeah. he posted. There. Sick fuck. Um, and he would, he said, he bragged about, he had like a second home he used as his like whatever. Fuck pad. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and he says that he recorded all of his sex there. In, just in case like the women accused him of a sexual assault or whatever like, so he would he, have like evidence of it or something he says that he kept it on an encrypted hard drive and um you oh know like God. all this and um but he also just like rampant misogyny homophobia like terrible amoral shit like he had a real like whoever gives the least fucks wins yeah i think that was like an actual kind of quote from his that, that was his philosophy though he was truly was like business philosophy no, from his 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 pickup artist philosophy, okay. but I think oh, it, yeah, yeah, sure, it pervaded everything. You know, like he he was a true amoral person. Ross Ulbricht, I think you know, I'm I I feel for him, and uh, I think he was he's an interesting like sympathetic character. And uh, Alexander Kaz is like a true. He's like, like most American businessmen, <laughs> kind of like hollowed out, uh, monstrous kind of person. I mean, right. I'm sorry to say this because I'm like speaking ill of the dead. We'll get to that. Well, like, I mean, it's like you know those the person who gives the least fucks wins it sounds like that's a very successful recipe for in america you know sure i mean and he was successful in business he was i guess successful in his like sex life if you call that success i mean he seemed to i mean if you read his rushvi posts they're like a whole psychological portrait like i don't want to be like too i'm not a psychologist but you can see him talk about how he was raised by his mother and his father was not around and like how he craved like it seems it, like the kind of guy who didn't get much attention from females when he was younger i'm sure that i'm sorry <laughs> that's probably true as well but he also he he like he uh he just openly kind of um had i think a kind of daddy complex where he wanted to i mean this whole idea of alpha o2 alpha bay it was about his quest to become this weird idea of of a man Mm -hmm. uh that was absent from his life i mean he, he right. posted about how, like i was because i was my father wasn't around i didn't learn like how to use a chainsaw or like riding a go-kart or something until i was 18. um and that like these weird ideas of masculinity mm. i don't know um it was all very strange but more like germane to the story we could talk about like his complexes for a long time but um he had posted in Rushvi about like um, his whole pattern of life. He had posted mm. about the encryption that he used. This was how law enforcement was able to kind of like create a profile of him and and start to make a plan about how they were gonna wow. actually nab him and more importantly his laptop. I mean, they could arrest him any time. That was the easy part. Um, the hard part was going to be getting that laptop right. open. Um, there was actually like a bizarre incident where like so after sorry i'm skipping ahead a bit like that's no, fine they you know they uh 
the, the this becomes like a massive law enforcement investigation mm -hmm. called Operation Bayonet. They bring in the Thai police who are extreme, extremely cooperative. Like the Thai Thailand is not a good place to hide out as a drug lord. Yeah, there's a lot of DEA yes. there and a lot of it's like it's just like extradition heaven practically. You know, it's like not. Uh, it's not offshore or whatever. Um, it's very similar to Mexico in that way, where there's a lot of DEA, DEA right, and right. CIA. Or... Absolutely. It's like considered a kind of, I think, like desirable outpost, I think, as a DEA mm. agent. And that is who, I mean, the DEA is, um, once they were brought into the case, they're the ones who have all the connections to the local law enforcement. They have the most agents abroad of any law enforcement agency. Mm. They work like hand in glove with the Thais um, in Bangkok. And, and so not a good place to be hiding out as like the a dr drug lord. Um, although, you know, I don't know, he thought he would never be identified. So maybe he was just there because he likes the weather or the sex life. Yeah, he uh, likes the prostitutes. Yeah. yeah. So the the ties are now like working with them. And oh, sorry, I was just getting to this. This You, you know, we were talking about like how it would have been easy to just like arrest him. They mm. actually at one point, um, the whole this whole american delegation kind of of prosecutors and agents is like has come to thailand to bangkok and they're just sitting in the lobby of their hotel where they're planning the this they're kind of brainstorming and thinking about how they're going to do this takedown and um the thais who are now following causes every move with a surveillance team like send them a message that says like we 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 see like um his white porsche panamanera has like just parked in front of your hotel uh, and um uh, and then like the next sec and then like one of the fbi agents kind of like goes to like try to just look out the window and check it out and at that moment cause walks through the door of the lobby of this hotel and the whole this whole team that has by this point been tracking him for nine months is like what the fuck like that's him and it's uh you know from their perspective it's like seeing a ghost they they're they think that they're they're blown basically they think that cause has like figured out that he's being tailed mm -hmm. that he's being surveilled and that they've they're onto him and they they imagine that he's gonna, gonna like come over and say like i got you just like fuck off like you're not gonna get the evidence you need to charge me you know um or to extradite me and instead he just sits down at the table right next to them where he just happens to have a business meeting what yes like it was a complete coincidence it was totally bizarre and really freaked out like all the agents and prosecutors who just kind of like quietly dispersed and um you know tried to be like stealthy about it they um but that's the thing like they they could have arrested him at any time um but they needed to get him logged into alpha bay they needed to like get his laptop open um and what what so, did they want? What was the most valuable thing to them in the laptop? Well, they wanted to get a Ross Ulbricht style arrest, mm -hmm. you know, which is like they they'll see him him logged into the because there would be the if Ross they arrested Ulbricht, him without the laptop, there wouldn't be enough enough evidence, right? They would be going on these blockchain um, trails, which are strong, but like very rarely used in court up to that point. Mm -hmm. So um, that would have been a little dicey. This email, which is kind of like circumstantial almost, you know, um, and then yeah it would have been difficult to like make it a uh, open and shut case basically <sighs> right, so right, right. so they want like what they got with ross Ulbricht, which is he was logged into like his mastermind account on the silk road like mm. that is his dead to rights evidence they wanted that for for cause by the way there's a whole other story and i've kind of skipped over here about how they found the alpha base server which was using this secret 
technique that Chainalysis and IRS, T. Green Gambarian, actually developed together. Uh, something that they didn't even want to tell me about. Right. Um, but I kind of like figured out by the end of the book reporting, like mm -hmm. this secret surveillance technique that they found the IP address of that server, which was in Lithuania, it turns out. Um, but that's just to say that they had, they knew where the server was, but they had to get cause like connected to it, logged in, proving that he was without a doubt the owner of Alphabet. So with the help of this kind of like pattern of life that they've established with uh, all these pickup artist forum posts on Rouge V, um, they make this plan, which is like very elaborate. If you're ready to like, tell, tell, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, they're like not, on this morning, I think it was July, uh, July 5th, 2017. Um, there are like nine undercover agents all surrounding his house playing different roles. Like one is pretending to be a gardener. One is like, pretending to be an electrician, like working on a wiring box. And um, two just are like, like you see in the movies. Yeah, I mean, it's like truly um, just this whole cast of of actors almost. <laughs> and um, the one, the, an American DEA agent is like pretending to be shopping for real estate in this house at the end of the block um, with a, his fake Thai wife, who is an undercover agent and like she, her job, he's supposed to distract her while she goes up and like gets eyes on the house. And like, it's just so complicated. But then the real players in this are these two Thai female agents who drive their car down this cul-de-sac pretending to be lost. And um, they drive to the end of the block, kind of like like trying to look like they're bad at driving. And the security guard like tells them to turn around. And instead, they back up and crash the car into Kaz's front gate. This is like the kind of like go time. And in fact, the, what, what sort of triggered this is that the team in Lithuania that was supposed to... Um, basically connect to the alpha base server and surveil that while you know they do this takedown and show the connection they fucked up and crashed the server so that at that point is when like um the Lithuania, Lithuania team is like talking to this war room of agents and police and prosecutors mm -hmm. in the Bangkok office of the Thai uh, the Royal Thai police mm. and um they're watching surveillance feeds and everything and they are the ones who tell this these two women like it's it's time like go and they crashed this Toyota Camry into Kaz's front gate. That's like the the diversion that is meant to pull him out of his house so they can start to get in to get his laptop. This is after they crashed the server, right? Yeah. Okay. They're like we he's about to see that we've we've crashed his server. Right. He can close his laptop at any time and end this whole thing. Um. It turns out, like they would find out later, that when the server crashed, he was like frantically like sending emails to his hosting provider, like, "What's going on? Like, why is Alphabet down?" Um, and um, and that actually helps as even more evidence. But um, but he doesn't come out. His wife comes out, and she's like, "Oh, it's okay. Like, don't worry about it." She's very sweet, actually. I mean, I've just watched the video. I've seen and I've talked through the whole exactly what happens with all the agents there, and. Um, his Thai wife is like, it's okay, don't worry about it. But the the driver of the car, this undercover agent woman, um, is like, no, I'm so sorry. Like, please let me pay for it. Please have your husband come down so I can, you know, talk to him about paying it back. Like, I don't want to pay in my next life. She says, like, kind of like alluding, you know, some like Buddhist beliefs. And, um, and so, like, Kaz's uh, wife, whose name is Sunisa, like, shouts up to him, and and they see that. He's like in um, the, like his window actually opens, and even on the surveillance footage, 
the people in the war room can see, oh, that's him. He got his attention. Like he's, um, uh, and they can see that his that the blind is like cracked and and he's talking to his wife. And then he does come down and he's like shirtless and shoeless, like in his gym shorts. Um, uh, and I'm sorry, I also I just he was also commando. I just wasn't didn't really want he to was say naked. That. Yeah, no, no, he was just going commando. Oh, and, oh like oh. like no, um, <laughs> apparently, um, and. And uh, he kind of like comes out and tries to mess with the gate and all of the kind of different undercover agents start to like uh, get involved. And there's one agent who was pretending to be the driver of the real estate shopping couple's car like comes out to kind of help. And so at this point, when he's walking down, they don't know if the laptop's open or closed or do exactly. They, they don't know. They don't. They're just hoping yeah. to God he didn't close it. They did. They did see when they started this. There, the thing about Rouge V as well is that you can see um, when someone is logged in, they're like their kind of icon on their name turns green, you know, right. and shows like this person is active. And they could see at when I guess they could see that that he was active, um, but they didn't know if the computer was going to go to sleep. They, uh, but mm -hmm. that's when they when they saw that he was active. That's when they were like, okay, we can start this. That was like part of his, you know, sort of operational security right, right. fuck up here, essentially. Um, anyway, so I, I guess that's um, to make a long story short, like um, at this point, it's time for them to try to get the laptop. They um, There's a whole kind of other pantomime here about how they got his phone. Mm. They had to get his phone as well. Mm. Um, and like one agent kind of like grabbed it out of the waistband of his shorts and stuff, but, but the phone ultimately had nothing important on it. So I'll, I'll skip that. But like the... Um, at this point, like the gardener, I think, was the one who put his police vest on and starts like running towards cause cause like turns and sees him, realizes what's happening um, and goes into this fight or flight mode. Try you know, he immediately spins around. He knows he has to get back to his laptop. Um, and one agent grabs him and then another um, they kind of like tussle. But then like this one agent named M who was hiding in the back seat of the real estate shopping couple's car, mm -hmm. um, this kind of short athletic guy um, breaks free and he his job is to like sprint into the house. He's practiced on like other similar layout houses and everything. Oh, they knew the exact layout of the yes, house. Yes, they'd like studied other houses in the neighborhood. Wow. They, he sprints up the stairs. He like thinks he's got, it's in the home office he's like goes in there he finds that there's like two house guests who are asleep in bed and he's like oh sorry and he like flips spins around goes into the bedroom and finds this like cheap white desk with the laptop open still logged into alpha bay and he like you know lunges for it and puts his hand on the mouse pad and keeps it alive and uh that's it like you know you hear over the police radio and i, I heard this in the recording even like officers like we have the laptop and then everybody in the war room like Cheering. starts cheering and like yeah um it was just very dramatic sadly you know cause is then um brought to thai police headquarters kept in a jail there for the next week and at, after one week just before just after he's agreed to extradition in fact uh he's found dead in a mm. in a thai jail cell convenient for someone yeah you know i Maybe didn't I he have a lot? Of, I, didn't he work with the Russian mafia or something? Or right. he had a lot of like uh, shady clients that possibly didn't want I did, him to. I did hear that. You know, I heard that from a friend of his, and it yeah. was like um, a bit vague. I there's a lot of 
stories you can come up with about who would have wanted him dead. Mm -hmm. um, maybe he maybe he had like local police on the take even, you know, like who then were worried that they would be found out when he was captured, mm. you know, um, maybe he did like have local partners in Alpha Bay. Mm. D-Snake, I, I mentioned, was his kind of second in command. Right. And I, I mean, D-Snake actually tells me, uh, I, I did interview D-Snake um, through the dark, you know, through anonymous yeah. channels later. And um, he says that he had a whole plan to get Cause out. And he wouldn't tell me what it was, but it was a kind of like um, kill, I don't know, what do you call this? Like a dead man switch. Kill switch, yeah. Kind of a dead man switch. Like if you don't hear from me for a certain amount of time, then activate the plan and there was right. money like set up for it and everything. like as in if he's if he's if he's dead or if he dies or, or if he's just in jail okay like um you like release this money or something or like get hire a lawyer or i don't even know what um at one point cause had like bragged to a dea agent that i spoke to about having like a helicopter gunship that was going to come and break him out and i don't i don't know if that was like a, a silly boast or just fucking with her or um if Maybe that was the plan, mm. for all I know. Um, but no plan like happened in time. He, I mean, Cause died, um, and for D Snake, D Snake says that's evidence that he was killed because he would not have killed himself, um, which is what. So just to be clear, prosecutors, DEA, FBI, everybody um, told me that that Cause killed himself in jail, um, and. D-Snake says that's impossible because he would have waited for our plan at least to like mm. to see if it works. How long after he went into jail did he end up dead? About a week. About a week. Yeah. And what evidence was there that he actually killed himself? Well, yeah. So I like went, I mean, I, I, I spent time in, in Thailand. I like got as far as visiting the cell that he was in. I got video of his last. Um, oh, there's video of it. There's, there's jail cell video. There was... I saw that there were cameras in his cell when I was there. And I oh. was like, give me this video, please. Oh, um, so maybe he did kill himself. But the, the video, sorry. So the video shows, um, so just to be clear, like he, he was found asphyxiated, strangled in the back of the cell behind a kind of three foot high wall. There was a towel wrapped around his neck. Um, the suicide theory is that he, basically like wrap this towel around his neck, uh, made, made a noose of it, put it in the hinge of the door, which is this kind of like swinging three foot high door. And then just like, you know, lean forward, um, which sounds totally implausible. But if you read the medical literature, which I, I like looked into, it's really grisly stuff. It is like, I mean, I don't want to get into, I don't want to give people ideas, but it's easier than you think to, to kill yourself that way, to, to kill yourself without suspending your full body. Um, but, so I looked at this jail cell video, which I did get. I mean, they gave it to me. The time, well, I don't. I can't say exactly who gave it to me, but I got it. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, the law enforcement as a whole were cooperative about mm -hmm. giving me that video. I didn't like get it from a hack hacker or something. Okay, okay. Um, <clears throat> and it shows um, him kind of looking out of the cell, looking up and down the the jail like hallway. Then he disappears um, in the back. The the part of the cell where he died was not on camera. And in fact, there was a gap in the footage then, and the next thing you see 
you actually see you can kind of see him messing with the towel yeah even just like a tiny bit of by the, himself by himself in the corner of the frame nobody else in his cell no one else in his cell and then there's a half hour gap and then the next thing you see in the footage is everybody rushing in and finding his dead body so it's just why, totally inconclusive. why a half hour gap well this is the thing like they tell me that um I was told it was because nothing happened. There's just nothing on the video at that point. Why keep it? And the ties, you know, I just have to, I feel like you should not. Uh, That's like assume, so insulting to say that. <laughs> you shouldn't, you should not like assume malice where it could just be incompetence. Like the ties are probably not used to media scrutiny or, um, you know, and I could just, I could imagine that they thought it made sense to delete this like boring half hour of nothing happening in the cell just to save space on the drive. Like that is the part where he actually dies though. Well, you can't see anything. Oh, you it's can't all in the back. It. It's all off camera anyway. Okay. Okay. What it doesn't, what it doesn't prove. I mean, what it, what it would have showed if he killed himself, if we could, if he did kill himself, I truly am trying to be clear here that I don't know what happened. Right. Um, yes. Like I'm not taking, I'm not, leaning either way even. right i'm, I'm fully course. like um and then that's not just as a journalist like if i if i had an inkling of, of like if i could prove it either way then i would say so mm -hmm. um but what you don't see is like half an hour of nobody going into his cell you don't see any like the footage is is not there there's no footage so what it doesn't what i don't have is a, like is some dispositive thing of like seeing yeah he like goes to the back there's half an hour of nobody entering a cell, then he's found dead. Mm. That would have, I think, proved that it was suicide to me. Yeah, yeah. Instead, we have this mysterious half hour that his lawyer, you know, his defense attorney, who's convinced that he was murdered, was like, what the hell? Like, that's even worse. Well, if he was murdered, why would he set up the the noose or the the out of the bed sheets himself? Well, you know, like, like if you we, were- You can't actually see him, him make a noose. You just okay. see him kind of messing with the towel. Who knows? Maybe he was like, taking showers like about oh to you can't actually see him fashioning any no, sort of new no. oh, okay so like the theory that he was killed is that he um i mean it would have had to have been in that half hour mm. um is that somebody came in and like killed him choked him with the towel is there an autopsy there was an autopsy i read the i got the report i mean this is like a really impressive you know it's impressive that that, that i got it's impressive that they were willing to share it mm. um but it is a Thai coroner report. I don't, I don't know like how. Was there any sort of indication or any sort of details about that hyoid bone in the neck? You know the you know the bone that they found in Epstein that was fractured. And I guess there's there's tons of reports. Wow, you've gone deep on Epstein. Clearly, I mean that's and that is of course is the model for what everybody imagines happened here. The missing footage, like there was a jail cell footage, but it's missing and like there's the guys, a, there's this yeah. there's this bone in the neck that if it's broken that they say that that bone never breaks when someone just sort of asphyxiates themselves it's only mm. from from some severe trauma that's interesting i you know it wasn't there was no mention of that in the report i'm okay. learning about this bone from you right now okay um pull up something on the hyoid bone maybe we can look at it yeah the the report just says like deaths from asphyxiation mm -hmm. um no sign of anyone else's dna on his fingernails finger hands anything um mm. for instance like which might have been um but you know the I just want to, you know, this is the Thai police corner. And if we're worried that like the Thais were the Thai police or someone in Thai police, 
I, I I talked to many of the Thai police involved in this investigation. They they struck me as honest and mm -hmm. like un, not corrupt people. Although there are absolutely like huge pockets of corruption in the Royal Thai Police. Um, I don't I didn't see that in the you know in the people that I like spoke with who were involved in this, and they kind of had a good reputation. That's part of why they were brought in to this global this international case. Um, but yeah, if they if there were corrupt people who had him killed, then they could have easily like had the coroner's report written up in a certain exactly. way as well. So I'm not sure what any of that proves. Um, you know, the the prosecutor, like Grant, I mentioned Grant Rabin, um, the prosecutor in the case, he actually was in Thailand for all of this and he interviewed Kaz before he killed himself, before he killed himself or, or was murdered mm. um, and says that he kind of saw this side of Kaz. Like he, he was kind of shocked by Kaz's personality, which seemed to be kind of flat and unconcerned about his fate and um hmm. not like a sociopath but but someone but very strange and uh, grants grant would put like described it to me as like he was a gamer he kind of played his life like a game once you like the game is over you just turn the machine off like you you know once you've got your highest the highest score you can get and things are not working out for you. You just hit the reset button. Mm. You know that's how um, that's how he thinks cause thought and lived his life. Interesting. Cause's defense attorney saw it completely differently, of course, and right. um, said that like cause was concerned for his safety, concerned for his family, wanted to like make sure nobody believed that he was cooperating. Which of course the prosecutors and agents wanted him to become a source and and, and flip and like become even possibly like an undercover, help them with undercover operations and mm -hmm. things. Um, uh, and doesn't buy any of this stuff about cause like being ready to die. Right. So what does this say? Oh, hyoid bone fracture. Here you go. The hyoid bone fracture is a very rare fracture of the hyoid bone accounting for 0.002% of all fractures in humans. It is commonly associated with strangulation and rarely occurs in isolation. The, uh, the fracture may be associated with gunshot, in gunshot injury, car accidents, or induced vomiting. Huh. In 50% of strangulations and 27% of hangings, the fracture occurs. And, and Epstein's and that, that was, bone, bone, was, bone broken. was broken. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Because <clears throat> if, if you want to get into it, like, what I learned from reading the medical literature on strangulation and auto asphyxiation, mm -hmm. like killing yourself this way, is that it's um, way too easy. Like it's it's shockingly easy. People really? die in auto asphyxiation accidents all the time, like auto erotic asphyxiation. Do they really? Well, wow. it seems so. I mean, I'm not an expert in this, but I read some studies mm. just to see what I was trying to find out is like, you know, Kaz's defense attorney was like he hung himself from a three foot high wall and died. Like that does not make any sense. That just the the physics of that do not make sense. Right. But then when you read about it, yes, like people die. Like um, people hang themselves in a a a, seat, a seated position in a kneeling position very um, often. Like in the like in auto erotic uh, mm -hmm. like asphyxiation scenarios. Right. Not to like sorry. This is really. <laughs> grisly stuff to get into and then accidentally die yeah um frequently from this and Interesting. you know so and that that doesn't happen by like breaking a bone or like it's not like you've um like 
violently snaps your neck or something. Right, you, exactly. You, so if he like if his bone was not fractured, I would indicate that he did actually like strangulate himself. He right. actually did kill himself. But if the bone was broken right. in his neck, yeah. that would suggest that there was some violent trauma. Well, I'm now like just based on this conversation alone, um, oh, you know, sounds pretty convincing that Epstein was like strangled yeah because cause and the way that you do this like when you're um you know if you were sorry cause the cause case is i'm not this doesn't prove anything either way about him but he all he had to do was kind of cut off blood flow Mm -hmm. um which is much less sort of high force violent act than yes than what you're talking about which would break a bone so um Kaz's case remains unsolved. Like I, I did truly everything in my power to mm-hmm. f- come to a conclusion, and I could not. Um, but uh, I don't know. Like the Epstein thing seems <laughs> really fucking suspicious. Yeah, yeah, extremely fucking dark and a deep rabbit hole to fall down. <laughs> yeah. Um, um. So, but to, yeah, that was the end of the alpha based. Well, in some ways, it was the end. Like we didn't even get into this other thing. Like I mentioned that um, they wanted to flip cause, mm-hmm. um, but in fact, they had uh, simultaneously. This is like the size of this investigation. It was so sprawling. Um, at the same time that Alpha Bay was taken down, the Dutch police had taken over this second biggest dark web market called Hansa, and they were they had. The Dutch police were running, running the entire market undercover. They had taken the positions of the actual bosses of that dark web market, and had turned the whole thing into a kind of surveillance trap. Uh, such that when Alpha Bay was taken down, all of Alpha Bay's buyers and sellers just flooded into the second biggest market. This is what always happens on the dark web. Mm. You just go to the next market when one is is shut down which was Hansa in this case, which which was the whole thing, a kind of giant trap for all of Alpha Bay's refugees. Wow. And that so was- So they had like a net on the backside to basically catch everybody. Yes. I mean, <laughs> it was like truly an unprecedented operation in the history of dark web, you know, law enforcement. They, they, had, they did this kind of one-two punch thing where they not only took down the biggest dark web market in history, but then had this net, as you said, waiting for thousands and thousands of, of really the dealers is who they're going after, of course, um, just ready to catch them as they moved into Hansa, where, you know, like basically Hansa's code had been sabotaged to remove all the safeguards that, that, as I said, like a dark web market is not supposed to even know who is visiting, you mm-hmm. know, they, they shouldn't know who you are mm-hmm. any more than you know who they are, you know, mm-hmm. um, but Hansa had been kind of like silently rewritten by the Dutch, these Dutch mm-hmm. police, so that it could find all, out all these things about you. It was recording like all this information. It was like they, they tricked people into um, basically downloading malware. It, it was like it looked like sort of sales spreadsheets, but mm-hmm. in fact, it had a kind of homing beacon in it to identify drug dealers. They even did this like complex thing. They they at one point pretended they were trying to hire a new. Uh, kind of administrator for the market. And if you applied, they would say, well, we need to send you a YubiKey, like a USB key to like, um, you, you would plug in to um, confirm you know, for your security. Right. And in the pack, they would, they would mail the YubiKey hidden inside. It's common to like use this kind of camouflage when sending drugs or sending anything, but they would hide it inside of a stuffed animal, like a stuffed panda. 
And this panda also <laughs> had hidden in it a GPS beacon so that they could locate the, you know, even if you received your dark web mail at a drop address, which is like, you know, the smarter way to do it. You have some address that's not your home where you receive the stuff. The idea is that you would take this stuffed panda without thinking back mm. to your house and it would have a GPS oh, wow. beacon in it and they would find the what you know the people who are applying to work for mm. as administrators of a dark web market this way and the, it, this was a giant like just a feeding frenzy for law enforcement in terms of eventually arresting hundreds and hundreds yeah. of dealers and it, it it was sort of fed into a database of course of all this information that they had collected from this huge thing operation bayonet about alphabet users about hansa users went into this database and then like over the next years there were just one huge takedown after another so it's not easy to to trace exactly like where you know which arrests it led to but you know there were just like dozens of tons of drugs mm -hmm. and millions and millions of dollars and and hundreds of people arrested as a result of this. So how has this all affected this underground drug market today? Like what what is the current state of sort of dark web dark web drug dealing and this kind of stuff? Yeah, this is the the great twist ending, which is that uh, just as I was finishing the reporting on this uh, and really like finally, you know, it took me 5 years to really like get the full Alpha Bay story. I mean, it was wow. publicly announced as like, yeah, we did this massive takedown. Then it became clear, holy shit, they did like a takeover of the second like this and but all of that was sort of understood like as a sort of almost just like a press release in 2017. Uh it took me 5 years to really learn the details of how it all truly happened and to speak to everybody involved and like truly tell the story. And just as I was finishing that reporting, Alphabet came back online and is now being run by D Snake, the second in command. Oh shit, the yeah. guy you talked to. Yes. Like uh Alphabet is back and D Snake is in charge and um he is like, you know, it's not going anywhere. And and how long has he been in charge? How long has this been going on? I guess let's see. So I think they it came back online in the summer of like late twenty summer 2021 okay um and uh and of course it was relaunched from scratch so it had none of the met in the i don't know how it was like the thousands of, of dealers had moved elsewhere yeah it had to be persuaded to come back basically and it's taken almost until now i probably to um well not to even get close i would say to alpha base original well to its peak but but I think it has, by some measures, become. Um, I, I was looking at the numbers recently, and it's harder to analyze than you might think because Alphabet is doing a better job of of obscuring its of its business. But it has, by some measures, become the biggest dark web drug market again. So I'm sure he's read your book, and I'm sure he's well aware of how this all works now. And what? So well, he didn't need to read my book to know, like, what. Well, you know, actually, maybe he did, but some parts of it he might have known about how Cause got right. got got and uh i think he definitely had learned lessons from that in some of them were, were pretty apparent um like he he knows that cause's laptop was grabbed he says he has all these kill switch things where like um if his laptop is taken if his server is seized it'll be 
done destroyed and like alpha bay can be rebuilt automatically with like on new computers and on it a lot of stuff he, it's hard to to decipher how much of it is real or would work um mm. but yeah you would think that you know after alpha o2 and ross being caught with their laptops open they would figure out some sort of way to like remotely control their laptop being encrypted like either right. on, on a phone or like <laughs> absolutely but also D Snake just says like he just doesn't ever walk away from his open laptop. I mean that's the easy thing, right? He doesn't yeah, like, the easy way. when he's just even when he goes to the bathroom. He told mm -hmm. me he does wow. not he does not leave it open. Um, you know, everybody has their own claims. Everybody has their own reason for overconfidence. Mm -hmm. You know, each one of these guys thought that they had outsmarted the system. Mm -hmm. The one thing that I was really impressed with is that this was the, the whole cryptocurrency tracing part of how they got cause was never really public uh but somehow d snake did figure out that that was a big part of the investigation or maybe he just guessed and so alpha bay now only uses monero a, a new newer cryptocurrency that is designed to be far less traceable that's a big like sacrifice in a sense because most people don't want to use monero they don't a lot of people never heard of it um so you're reducing your revenue by doing that, but but D Snake like understands that money laundering is just essential, and that you don't take risks about you know financial Isn't there trails. Like Zcash or something too. Yeah, exactly. So well, that's very hard to trace, almost impossible. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's. It, 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 I appreciate you brought it up because Zcash, I think, is probably the least traceable. In fact, like perhaps truly untraceable. I know I made that mistake with Bitcoin once and believe that about Bitcoin, but I drew, I do just like talking to the researchers, looking at how it works. Zcash is almost like magically untraceable. It uses, Z, the Z in Zcash comes from zero knowledge proofs, mm. which are these sort of very, um, I don't know, like hard to even get your mind around kind of mathematical proofs where you can, um, essentially the whole Zcash blockchain is encrypted, but you can do a sort of mathematical um, uh, kind of uh, process on it where you can check that a, a transaction happens, that it, you, know, you cannot counterfeit something or double spend a coin or whatever, but you can do that while learning zero knowledge basically mm -hmm. about the transaction other than the fact that it was, that it was real and that it, you know, and that can basically like serve to um, guarantee this cryptocurrency Zcash in the same way that a, a normal blockchain does with Bitcoin, but without a blockchain that can reveal anything to anybody, you know, to it's truly a black box. Right. And, you know, I called Bitcoin, I think like at one point I thought it was the holy grail of the cypherpunks for financial privacy, but Zcash really does seem to be it. I mean, it's interesting we're talking about this because like, uh, maybe you can hear in the way I'm saying it that Monero, I'm not sure is that like Monero, the one that that is much more popular, I think, I think it is at this point, st still than Zcash is is thought to be untraceable, is no doubt far, far harder to trace than Bitcoin is being used by people on the dark web like DSnake and Alphabet. Mm. Um, but I don't, I don't think it is truly mathematically untraceable and the degree to which it can be traced you know is it, just the fact that there is any possibility of tracing means that chain analysis and that now a whole industry of companies competing with chain analysis mm -hmm. uh, chain analysis is now an 8.6 billion dollar 
startup. They have money to recruit the smartest people thinking of new tricks to, you know, unmask, to, to trace, to de-anonymize mm. any cryptocurrency that has like the slightest foothold, a little bit of like hints or a clue of how to follow the money. So I would still, you know, if I were like a uh, high net worth dark web criminal, I would still be pretty concerned about using Monero. Yeah. You know, and that's not just speculation. Like um, it was actually DSnake himself in our conversation at one point, our conversations over like some weeks um, who was like, hey, look at this, this just popped up. Mm -hmm. And it was a link to a dark web site mm -hmm. called Dark Leaks that some hacker had set up that was a collection of documents from the Italian police. Um, and it, it revealed like some uh, some of the, it, it was a lot of information about how the Italian police had taken down a couple of dark websites. And one of the files on it was a presentation that Chainalysis had given to the, the Italian police about their capabilities. Mm. And in that presentation, uh, in Italian, it says like, we can trace Monero in the majority of cases. And it breaks it down like in 60% of cases, we can get like a usable lead in, um, Another 15% of cases, we can find the sender, but not the recipients, that kind of thing. It, they sort of admit in this presentation that it's kind of probabilistic. Mm. It's not like definitive in the way that it has been with Bitcoin. But that's often good enough to start just like sending out those subpoenas. And like, you'll, you only have to have a kind of educated guess in a lot of cases to, to send subpoenas to start doing searches even yeah. in some cases. So I think that like a lot of cryptocurrency users are still probably falling for this trap of thinking that they're using an untraceable currency that is not quite untraceable and that might just be enough for them to be completely traced and caught so wow. um but i do i do think zcash may be an exception to that i can't imagine what it must be like to be you to be working on a story like this for five years and putting it together and in the meantime you're also doing report active reporting you're you know you're you're publishing all these other stories in the same time you're putting together these books this is what your third book well, yeah this is my third book <clears throat> um you know i uh I, i've covered it all as as it was happening you know in 20 like 18 i managed to get a couple of those dutch agents to talk to me and i wrote a story about the hansa part of it that second biggest dark web market that they that they took over mm -hmm. so and then for most of the rest of those years i'm just like running into dead ends hitting brick like hitting my head against brick walls and and uh it's not like i'm like slowly consistently making progress and getting this and the true breakthrough was when i realized when i when i started to see the cryptocurrency tracing was this incredibly important new investigative technique not new by 2020 but like new to me um and digging into that and then i learned that it was the kind of crucial weapon used to well, yeah, the, the kind of crucial like fingerprinting technique that had found cause and the had identified mm. Alpha Bay, uh, Alpha O2, and was this cr uh, kind of critical ingredient to taking down Alpha Bay. That's when the thing kind of like opened up for me. Like I, I started to, to learn about the, the crypto tracers who had been involved. And then once you kind of like have your foot in the door and you're talking to some of the major yes. players the other ones are like well we want to tell you our part of it too yes. you know people don't want to get left out um even the ones who whose names are anonymized and mm. stuff like i think that they also you know 
I I I really appreciate that that people tell these stories even anonymously, even with pseudonyms and stuff, because they just know that like this story is too crazy to to not to take to their grave, you know. Right. Um, I appreciate that about people that like they want to tell their craziest stories. It must be so wild for you reporting on all these things from you know these cryptocurrency marketplaces and and these dark web drug marketplaces and hackers that you talk to and there must be so many dots that connect for you like reporting on different stories and finding out how different things connect because you're in this like you're so like engulfed in this dark web underworld yeah i mean i guess so like i um how do you choose what stories to report on like how do you pick how do you decide what you're gonna what you're gonna either write a book about or yeah. what you're gonna report on well you know, I, I don't know. I like um, I it it, I got lucky in a sense that like um, as you say, that it all kind of connected. I had been mm. so obsessed with the Silk Road um when it appeared, and mm. it just seemed like such a fascinating story. And I was totally beaten to that story by um like Nick Bilton, who wrote the book about it, and um you know, and I I was like that is going to be the best story I ever encounter in my career, and yeah. um. And this whole story of like how cryptocurrency has like unlocked the dark web. And then I was just lucky enough that it turned out that I had exactly the wrong idea about it. And in fact, cryptocurrency was the fatal flaw of the dark right. web. And like the whole thing, like I just kind of was able to flip it. And instead of talking to the the criminal sides, which I'd always thought was the right approach to get the best story, and it often is, but like um, it turns out that like in this case, law enforcement really was able to tell me the story better than anybody because they were the ones who figured out this like crazy revelation that you could trace cryptocurrency or, you know, with the help of Chainalysis and Sarah mm. Micklejohn and, you know, and that perspective, I never really told a, a story from law enforcement's perspective in this way before. And I was a little wary of, of doing so. Um, but I think that in a way it's like even more dramatic because you can see, you can see the story in a way that even the criminals could not see it, you know? Like they thought that they were invisible, right? And they were not. And like you can watch them um, through this kind of secret lens, and like mm. that pr provided just like an amazing dramatic irony, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but just yeah, like I guess to your question of like how do we how do I find the the next big story? Like I I write all kinds of sizes of stories. I write like web stories. I wrote like a story about like a chainalysis research report to, mm -hmm. that I published today. That's like you know kind of daily um fodder kind of stuff and i think it's important sometimes but w really it's almost like i'm looking for like this the storytelling arc i mean you're a storyteller you probably like think about this too like you don't want to just for for a news story it's like one fact can be mm -hmm. the whole thing for a magazine story it's like maybe one character can be just enough mm -hmm. um for a book you need like an actual whole arc of like right twists and turns and a climax and like um and that kind of thing and mm. and uh and so i'm just i don't know in a way i i'm just kind of like surveying like all these crazy stories happening in the hacker world and the dark web and um it's only when one of them kind of fits that almost like three act structure or whatever that i think like oh this needs to be a book mm. yeah do you ever get any pushback from editors when you're working on stories? Because you've worked for like big publications, Forbes, Wired. Like, do you ever deal with any of that? Like any sort of pushback or any try sort of trying to like, you know, square the circle type thing with people? That's interesting. Like when I was at Forbes, I sometimes I felt like, why do they let me write for this place? <laughs> <laughs> like, um, 
it it's a it was a pretty conservative. I'm not sure it's quite as conservative now. Um, it had definitely like some conservative leanings. Uh, mm -hmm. Probably still, I think it still does. Yeah, I mean, um, when, I think when anybody nowadays thinks about uh, any big publication, you automatically just figure out, okay, where do I paint them left or do I paint them right? You know, yeah, it's like yeah. politics are so like is so injected into every mainstream news publication totally. now. And so you know, like I remember the editor in chief of Forbes when I was. I did like a big piece on the Dread Pirate Roberts and based on my interview with him. And he was a little bit like, why are we like giving a platform to this drug dealer to like, to hawk his shit through our magazine, you know, mm -hmm. like, um, and, and as a result, he, there was like a little bit of like, I mean, I, this is typical stuff for Mac, you know, when you work with editors and it's, it's not, I, I don't think it's like, criminal or anything but but there were little injections of like of jabs at him and like um there you know that at that point the silk road was getting hit with a lot of uh sort of low-level cyber attacks from other mm -hmm. dark web people and hackers and stuff and and uh i had mentioned that in the piece that like there was a kind of war like you know i guess you know a bit of conflict within these groups and they were accusing like the Silk Road was accusing other dark web markets of hitting it with these attacks. And um, an editor added in like, as always happens with like um, the drug world, now there's like internecine gang warfare and violence has entered. And I was sort of like, it's not violence, you know? This is like, right. this is actually the alternative to real violence. It's just mm. like some dudes, some some nerds like hitting each other with data packets mm. instead of bullets. So like I, um, I do, I do kind of like look at that piece now and think like, ah, oh, that, that, that wasn't the right approach to talking about this. Like that does not give enough credit to whatever credit is due. And you can tell that I have like a very complicated feeling about the Silk Road. Um, like it did eliminate some kinds of violence from the drug trade and mm -hmm. deserves credit for that. And I think that like the slightly older, maybe just socially conservative, um, editors of Forbes, like sometimes were, I think a little wary of, of giving it that credit, you know, mm. but I have to say like Forbes was a wonderful place to work in a lot of respects. Like I, and they gave me the freedom to chase these stories, even though it was not very Forbesy very often. And I spent like right. years just like, um, covering anonymous and WikiLeaks and stuff oh, that really? was not, not at all like what you would think Forbes would be interested in. And Parmi Olson, who wrote a great book about Anonymous, also worked at Forbes at the same time. And Kashmir Hill, who now works at the Times and covers like some, you know, she covers surveillance and privacy, was there mm. too. It was like an actually a wonderful like newsroom. Mm. And um, we had ton we had a really long leash. And there was, you know, like sometimes these bits of like editorial injections, but it was like not a it was a cool place to work. Is that were you working for Forbes when you actually sat down with Julian Assange? Yeah. yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. And that was like a, you know, I mean, to be fair, like I, um, I came up with a Forbesy sort of angle for the piece that we did based on that, which was like, WikiLeaks has now disemboweled the U.S. military and like dumped their secrets on on the web. But it could happen to you, um, CEO, whatever. Like this could happen to your company too. WikiLeaks can, and, and that model of of leaking and whistleblowing mm. um, is just as ripe, you know, for disrupting companies as it is governments. And that was kind of the the excuse that I had to 
write this big piece about Assange oh. and WikiLeaks for the magazine at the time, and they put Assange on the cover. And it was like Assange wants to leak your corporate secrets, you know. Mm. But I, I was, I was happy to, to I was fine with that angle because it was true, and mm -hmm. uh, and like it gave me, and it also allowed me to like go meet Assange in 2010, just before mm -hmm. the biggest leak he ever did, which was Cablegate, the um, you know, quarter million State Department cables that really, um, I, I think it was kind of like in some ways the climax of like what wikileaks ever was um explain what Cablegate was again for people who don't understand that well yeah so there were, over the course this is all i think i think it's fair to say now was this the, was this after uh the collateral murder stuff yes okay so 2010 was the big year for wikileaks okay now we're going way back like uh uh the april of 2010 is when collateral murder came out which okay. was this that's what they called it uh that was wikileaks title for it it was the a video from i think it was an apache helicopter mm -hmm. cockpit like the view from the pilots the the gunners perspective um as they fired on these civilians and journalists in iraq and um killed like several of them um wikileaks obtained this and published it and it, and that was what when i was like holy shit i'd heard of wikileaks but uh, i'd never i it was like this is some extremely explosive yeah. shit that they're getting and they had not got it from a hacker they you know or or whatever they got it through a leaker like um they got it through their anonymous essentially dark web we didn't call it that so much back then but it was a same it was a dark web uploading uh portal basically they were using tor in the same way that the silk right. road was but um or not in the same way they were using the same tool but they were using it to grant anonymity to sources right so that such that like nobody could trace the leak right essentially um that was the idea and and you know chelsea manning was able to to thus like share a giant trove of, mm. of classified secrets with wikileaks um chelsea manning was found out of course right. through um her associations with this other hacker adrian lamo and who kind of ratted her out and um so that's not a very nice way to say it, but but turned her in, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, but you know that WikiLeaks. The reason that I like got interested in the dark web really was because of WikiLeaks and sort of tracing its origins. Oh in wow! This, okay. In this cypherpunk dark web world, Julian Assange was a member of the cypherpunks in the right. '90s. You know, like talking about using encryption technology to like change the world. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah. So then, like collateral murder came out in april i think then in july the afghan war logs came out the um this giant collection of like classified documents from war in afghanistan wikileaks published then the iraq war logs war, war diaries i think it was called later and then um it was a by that time i was like already like tr trying to get get to assange you know trying to mm -hmm. make inroads with wikileaks i like found this weird guy named penguin x on the wikileaks irc channel who then i was like chatting with him over like this encrypted thing and like uh he was like come to iceland and i did and like um met him and sort of like hung out waiting to hear like julian assange at, at that point he was like come to iceland but well, there's no guarantees you're gonna meet julian well they told me that i would but like they wouldn't say when or where okay and stuff like that and um and uh and assange actually was sort of I don't know if he was quite on the run, but he had been accused of uh, these sex crimes right. against two Swedish women and gone off the map. I think it, it turned out that he was actually just like 
staying in this um, house in the English countryside. And so I was told to go to London. I flew from, from Reykjavik to London, and I met with Assange in London um, and interviewed him. And that was really like the genesis of my first book, um, which was about, um, about WikiLeaks, but about the cypherpunk movement that gave rise to WikiLeaks and about the ways that um, people for decades tried to develop this cryptographic anonymity technology and you know how and hoped to change the world with it mm -hmm. which you know in the case of wikileaks and a lot of the other stories i tell in that book um were about like trying to free the world's information to to allow leakers and whistleblowers to um to to just dump it you know to, or to hand it over to mm -hmm. somebody like wikileaks um or, you know, in some cases, like the first person who came up with this idea was this cypherpunk, like crypto anarchist guy named Tim May. And mm -hmm. he had en envisioned this idea of like a kind of uh, eBay firm, like black market eBay for information where anybody can go on there and buy and w using cryptographic anonymity, he imagined something like Tor, although it didn't exist, and buy and sell secrets, um, which is exactly what the Silk Road was. He just never imagined that like the contraband could be physical, could be right. a, could be like drugs hidden in a package. I mean, um, nobody thought that the mail system actually would would allow that. That was the big one. Other big surprise of how well Silk Road worked. Mm. Was Julian everything you thought he would be? What was he like in person? What kind of guy was he? Yeah, I mean, this is, man, this is like I don't know how long ago. More uh, twelve years ago, yeah. um, he was really charming. Um, he was like. I don't know. I was a little shocked, at, like how tall and handsome he was. He had he had just cut all of his hair to like this short kind of, and he was wearing a suit, mm -hmm. which was all really surprising, um, and um, wasn't how I, you know, thought of him at the time because he had he had had long hair and looked like a hacker and right. dressed like you know in these mm -hmm. hackery ways, um, and he was like he's he was like good at. Uh, Sort of charming me and flattering me and um he yeah. definitely like you know um he was a great interview he um he had like really interesting things to say i was very taken by him to be honest really um yeah i mean i, I thought he was just like a super fascinating hmm. and admirable person at the time and i think it you know it was in the process of writing that book that i you know when i tried to talk to him again um, when he kind of showed more of some of his true colors that like, I realized that he was among other things, just so arrogant, uh, yeah. like to a degree that like, you know, I, 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 I don't think it wasn't like the points, uh, to, to like judge his character. You know, I wasn't, um, ever really just trying to like do the celebrity profile of Assange and like, um, but. But I think that it does speak to, like, he had an enormous amount of power, and as the as the controller of all of these secrets, ultimately, and I think it both kind of like warped him a little. I, I talk about For that sure. in the book. I mean, everybody I think who was who lives in that secret world gets a bit warped by mm -hmm. it. Yeah, and also I think he was extremely paranoid for good reason, and that also like it's a hard way to live. And, yes. Um, Did you record the interview? Yeah, I did. I don't. I don't know if I have it anymore. Um, oh God! My God! Like I, I. It's just been so long. Like, how long was it? Um, how long was the whole conversation? Yeah. I think it was like four hours. 
Yeah. I mean, I, I you know, we, we published the whole Q&A online, mm -hmm. but I don't know if I have the audio anymore. I wouldn't have even back then recorded it like to my phone or something. I, I would have used like a tiny, like one like of those. A tape recorder? A, like one of those old fashioned digital recorders. And oh, I remember, okay. it's actually fascinating. Like, I remember that I had two to be safe. You, just to, you know, like, yeah, just always. to be careful. Yeah. And uh, um, at one point, uh, his, he and his, um, I thought uh, uh, she worked like for him at WikiLeaks. It turns out that um, I would say like, this is Sarah Harrison. Sarah Harrison came to our interview as well. Mm -hmm. She was, I think ultimately like a really important person in, in and kind of took over a lot of the responsibilities of WikiLeaks was instrumental in helping Snowden mm -hmm. um, get out of um, like, uh, well, to get to, to freedom, if you call it that in Russia. Yeah. Um, anyway, at one point, like they, they were like, can we have a moment to discuss something privately? And I took my recorder with me, but I accidentally left one in the room. Oh no. And um, they just had a whole like conversation um, that I recorded um, but I didn't record it actually. What I, 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 just as as they were starting to talk, I was like, "Oh, I left the other recorder in," and I went back and I and I like said, "I've uh, they talking I've shit got, about you." And you I've got one more. <laughs> no, I mean, they were probably planning like the drop of the of Cablegate. You know, they they just told oh, me okay. or whatever. You know, for all I know, they were just like talking about like um, how to get to their next mm. like meeting or whatever. Um, but. Uh, I remember I went and I was like, oh, oh sorry, I actually left another recorder in here. But I th I thought like, wow, I could have recorded a secret conversation right. about WikiLeaks like plans at that point. I would have been like totally unethical to do that. Um, but they th they had told me in that interview, we have something, we have our biggest thing ever planned. So it's this is good timing uh, when you come out with your cover story about, mm -hmm. uh, you know, this big interview with Assange. Um, we're going to drop something, but they didn't say what it was. And it turns out that it was Cable this gate. collection of a quarter million State Department cables, which are like, you know, secret communications between mm. all the embassies in the world. Is that when that one communicate the communications came out between uh, like Victoria Newland and the guy, Gregory Pyatt, who is the guy in Ukraine? He I, was the he was the U.S. head of the embassy in Ukraine. And there was like some conversations where they were trying to install install a coup in Ukraine, like install a new leader of Ukraine. And they're like having a discussion like, oh, we should get this guy. Maybe this guy, well, can we get Biden to sign off on this guy? I think that was a part of Cablegate maybe. I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, the thing is like, it's a gigantic trove of um, the way of, of like documents that show how the US really thought about international relations. Mm. Um, and it will be, it will be studied and used for decades.com i mean it is like an archive of of incredible like material um you know i i i didn't like write about every revelation and like uh, you, you can write whole books and people have about what they revealed i was interested in like how right. it was obtained right and like the the techniques and the methods and the thinking of wikileaks and like how they wanted to um explode institutional secrecy mm. which they really effectively they did very well you know and, and um would continue to do like in interesting ways for years to come i mean like we can get into wikileaks role in 2016 which We're is more like another podcast i know <laughs> we haven't even talked about my second book which is about russian hackers and like um, uh, yes the, you know the gru military intelligence agency which um which ties into with their like yeah i'm really interested in talking about that we're gonna have to do another podcast yeah 
I'd be happy to. I mean, um, there's, yeah, as you, I think as you can tell, like, Tracers in the Dark, this new book, like, it does kind of, um, it it's like the culmination of like a decade of reporting for me that's kind of about the dark web and about cryptocurrency, which I was like, which when it appeared was this new fascination. Um, but then I, I took like this years long um, detour that I'm still on somewhat. Mm -hmm. So like, cover state-sponsored hacking and cyber war and like that's still um a big part of my, what i cover i mean mm. it's all it's all part of that hacker world but like yeah. um but oh, hold on a second i'm gonna have uh, i'm gonna have him order you an uber so we can keep talking and we don't have to sit here and oh, wait yeah. for 10 minutes yeah so i like so i sp i spent some years and i still am covering that world of state-sponsored hackers mm. who are really very very different from the hacker undergrounds of like whatever the dark web or yes. the hacktivist community yes. that, I, that I was really interested in and like you know a decade ago uh they they don't talk they um they're incredibly sophisticated com comparatively you know mm. and um yeah the russiagate story is crazy too i was listening to something this morning uh from glenn greenwald talking about russiagate he had an amazing quote about it he said russiagate is the wmd of our generation <laughs> I disagree with Glenn Greenwald about a lot of that. Stuff. Oh, do you really? Yeah. yeah. So, um, I I think I appreciate his skepticism, mm. and um, I think that like uh, there were definitely parts like of RussiaGate that were overblown. You know, the people were looking for that smoking gun of like collusion or whatever. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, I was not truly like <clears throat> I, I. Um, but I. Oh, man, this is like a big topic to open up with at the end of. The, I know, right? <laughs> we have five minutes to talk about Russia. <laughs> Three-hour conversation. No, I'll it's just say it. this much, and I think Glenn Greenwald has um, come around on this too. The GRU hacked the DNC and the Democratic uh, uh, and the Clinton campaign and the DCCC, mm -hmm. and leaked that information to WikiLeaks, mm -hmm. and. Every, like everything that was published by WikiLeaks was part of a Russian of a of a GRU information operation. Like all of those, you know, parceled out leaks that kind of you know dominated so many of the headlines of, of the 2016 election were absolutely engineered by Russian state-sponsored hacking. And like I, I've, uh, I mean, I'm, <laughs> this is truly a I thought there fucking was, can of worms. Because I thought there was no evidence, though. Like the the FBI's long report that 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 came out, there was no actual evidence that Russia had hacked it. Is that no? There, there is evidence. There is evidence. Absolutely. And and I, there's some evidence that like you know is is just laid out in like uh, kind of Department of Justice indictments mm -hmm. where you can see what they did, but they don't exactly tell you how the, they found it. There, there's other evidence that you can see just flat out like sitting in public um, from cybersecurity companies who like pointed out like, look what we found. And cybersecurity companies, by the way, when they get things wrong, another one jumps on them and says, look, we're gonna debunk this. Mm -hmm. Like the whole cybersecurity, um, I would say researcher community knew that Russia had done this right off the bat. And yes, there was well-founded, you know, well, well, um, I would say very, very warranted skepticism about it. But there's a kind of like community that that you know that uh, through a process of like checking each other's work, found yes, like this looks solid. Really looks like the GRU hacked the DNC. Oh yeah, and now um, the and now the hacker who seems to have done it says that he gave this stuff to WikiLeaks, who is Gucci for mm -hmm. 2.0. Mm -hmm. um, the 
the actual evidence of like how I, I, I don't know, I, I don't mean to like point people to a competitor, but I talked through all of this with Julian. Oh, um, did you? Yes. Uh, and uh, Julian Dory and like, oh, Dory. Uh, <laughs> okay. Um, not, yes, not Julian Assange. <laughs> that would be a different. Um, uh, I don't know if you can. I mean, you, you and Julian are, are yeah, are yeah, friends, yeah. Right? Julian's yeah. amazing man, and, smart guy. And he, you know, is skeptical about this too, as I think you are. But in the first episode that we did, um, you know, we walked. I, I tried my best on the spot. I wasn't really like it was just off the top of my head to walk him through the evidence that I remember. Um, rem remember, just like you know, uh, off, uh, you know, on the spot. Mm -hmm. um, that shows that it was Russian hackers mm. who hacked the DNC. So from what I understood was that the Hillary campaign tried to get hackers inside Ukraine to get dirt on the Trump campaign, and then it sort of backfired, and it ended up being this this whole Russiagate thing, and then the media narrative kind of like spun out of control and was all one way. Oh, we, we, should, we, we could do a whole podcast just yeah. on this. We should. Well, I'll just say this, like... Let me just say, like, try, try to say this as quickly as I can, because it's and it's super technical. It's not super technical, mm -hmm. but it's a bit technical. Yeah. But the same hackers who like um, your driver will be here in four minutes, so we got. <laughs> I got four minutes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So You're on the clock. <laughs> the, the same hackers who sent a phishing email to John Podesta that they used to to like fake a Google login, get mm -hmm. his account um, information. This was a group called Fancy Bear. You can yeah. see um, they they made the mistake of like using um, a. URL shortening service to create those phishing web pages. And um, because they use one service, you can kind of identify a pattern in all of the URLs that they created. And so you can actually see like everyone that they targeted. And mm -hmm. several groups, um, companies have like um, mapped out like basically where they sent all those phishing emails as a result. And it is like Ukrainians, um, people in NATO, like right. people critical of Russia in U.S. academia, um, it is like very much like uh, it. It just to like try to highlight not even just who they are, but their motivations. They look like people extremely aligned with Russian state interests, not Ukrainian interests, for instance. So like, um, but then also like the very first uh, leaks that were published by Gucci for two point uh, after the DNC was hacked. Gutcher 2.0 was the kind of cover name for mm -hmm. the hacker. They, they came up with this name pretending to be like a sequel to Gutcher, who was a true independent hacker. Gutcher 2.0 published some of these emails. They were in the Word documents, there were Russian language formatting errors. Like they had mm. loaded them and edited them on a, a computer with Russian as its default language. Wow. Now that's pretty, like, yeah. pretty bad, right? I mean, um, <clears throat> there's I, ultimately, though, I just think that, like, and yeah, I think even Glenn Greenwald agreed to this eventually. Like when you when the FBI like publishes a full indictment with like listing all of this evidence uh, and like even like the search terms used by these hackers, because clearly they got that stuff from cert, you know Google or whoever. Like that is a, a conspiracy that is pretty easy to debunk if if like the stuff listed in this indictment is just fully false, like all of it. It would just take so much. It's right. just like eventually, in just on top of the, the things that I just mentioned quickly, mm. it's just the preponderance of the evidence suggests, yes, Russia hacked the DNC. Mm. I mean, uh, I, of course they did. Like, I don't know. Uh, clearly, like, um, there we're sort of, like, it's just become such a part of, like, this very polarized 
debate that I feel like these sides are not talking to each other. But, mm. but like the people who are saying this story you just told about Hillary Clinton and Ukraine and stuff, like how how do they account for this like blatant, glaring evidence of like Russian fingerprints on this stuff? Right, right. You know? Well, it is true that that Hillary's campaign had a very tight relationship with the leader of Ukraine at that time, and they were constantly going back and forth dealing with them and especially during yeah. that time and you know going back to Maidan and all that but that's nor, neither here nor there yeah i know um, i mean i i've i've spent a lot of time in ukraine too and um i you know ukraine, ukraine like i remember i visited the embassy and even the state department officials i spoke to were like this place is so fucking complicated yeah <laughs> like uh um uh you like nothing is like what it seems here i was kind of freaked out talking to them but um but you know, I have I have also found that like, and I think it's become more clear cut, like that yes, Ukraine is the victim of like a massive amount of Russian oppression over decades, centuries, yes. and now a full year of full scale invasion. So, like I I don't know, like I'm yes, I think it it made sense for um, the U.S. to support Ukraine at mm. that time and to support the Maidan revolution. Yes, I mean like I'm, I guess I'm like a kind of just straight up pro-Ukrainian person, although I I acknowledge that there, you know, mm. as I've said, there's corruption there. There's like extremism of certain kinds. It's like, I'm not a Ukrainian nationalist, but I, but I'm a Ukraine supporter. Mm -hmm. um, there's, there's a lot of, a lot of meat on the bone there. I want to get into yeah. with, and I want to do another podcast soon. We got to figure that out, but your ride is here. So everyone, I will link, a, uh, I'll put a link to your book, your new book, Traces in the Dark, in the description. Uh, people want to learn more. I highly suggest listening to the episodes you did with Julian Dory on his podcast. Cool. They're fucking fascinating. They cover every single detail. Um, where else can people go to learn more about what you're doing and find find you on the web? Yeah, you can find me on, on like that's my <laughs> that's my personal website. You can find <laughs> me on Wired too and just see what I'm up like writing on a cool. daily basis. But yeah, my website does like I usually put up like the big like. Uh, deep dive features that I do like I do only like you know a couple of those a year um, but yeah I appreciate it um, cool. my, yeah, my website's andygreenberg.net um, cool I'll but, link it all below yeah thank you so much thank for you for in. this uh, clearly we have more to talk about next time my pleasure let's get you on your flight <laughs> cool